Ciao. Ciao. Jalo Chow Chow Podcast has returned. What have I done to you? What do you want from me? We want you to listen. We want you to subscribe. And we want you to join our Facebook group. Do you know how to do those things? I don't know. I don't know anything. Well then, it seems we have no choice. <laughs> Ciao, everybody, and welcome to episode 96 of the Jalo Chow Chow podcast. This is the All Jalo Show, and my name is Chris, and I run a little website called thejalloscore.com. And joining me today, all the way from Italy, is my good buddy Al. How are you, sir? I'm very hot right now. How are you, Chris? <laughs> Um, are you experiencing a heat wave over there? Yeah, we are having a crazy heat wave here in Southern Europe. The heat wave last week, they named Cerberus after uh, something from Dante's Inferno, like the dog, the three-headed dog that guards the gate to hell. And this week's heat wave, they've called Charon, which is the... The guy who steers the boat that takes you across the river sticks. Oh, okay. So I didn't uh, know that was his name. I didn't know either. Well, I might have known when I was a kid and read it. But the fact that they're using these uh, apocalyptic terms to describe the weather is not a good sign. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, not. <laughs> it's not a good sign, but at the same time, at least they're... Trying to find a little bit of humor in it, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. So, hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. I have to apologize for the late release of the previous episode, 95, which was Psych Out for Murder. It took us a little bit, it took, sorry, it took me a little bit longer to get it out simply because I knew that we had recorded over five hours worth of discussion and every time I sat down to say, let me see if I can edit through this and turn it into something I could release, uh, I just changed my mind and said, I, I can't, I can't deal with it right now. So last weekend I decided to go through it and I have to apologize in advance to anyone who may have heard anything in the latter two thirds of the podcast that may have either been offensive or stupid or off topic or... <laughs> anything because I just, I didn't go through it all. 
you know, huh. I got through the first part. Um, I got to the part where we were talking about the movie starting and then um, I just let it roll. I, I looked at the waveform in Audacity and I didn't see any long, long silences. So I figured <laughs> that we had it covered for the most part. Well, I just listened to it yesterday and it sounded okay. I mean, I didn't, I don't think we'll be canceled for anything, but uh, anything else. Yeah. Anything besides <laughs> the normal stuff. We've gotten 659 downloads for the murder clinic. We've gotten 509 for the embalmer, uh, which is episode 93. And we've got 173 downloads for psych out for murder. And it's only been out for three days. So we're definitely seeing an uptick. And I think that's a great thing for people who are out there listening, who may not know. We have a Facebook page. It's a group. It's a private group. Uh, it's Jallo Chow Chow, same name as the podcast. If you are a Facebook person, um, feel free to request access to the group and I will let you in. There's not a lot of discussion going on on there, but we do post a few things like polls or um, if Al happens to have some sort of um, supplemental information related to an episode uh, or fancy animated GIF <laughs> that... Uh, uh, of Pater, Paterlini getting slapped back and forth. That was so funny. I, I, I was laughing so hard because I had just posted the podcast and I was going through the other Facebook groups and, you know, um, promoting it and whatnot. And I refreshed mm -hmm. the page and then I just saw that. I saw, I saw, um, was it Mario and Licia and Paterlini on the couch? Yeah. And uh, him slapping them back and forth. Yeah, I'd been sitting on that for weeks, waiting for you to <laughs> post so I could uh, drop it on the Facebook group. If you're not a Facebook person, but you do want to get in touch with us, you can email us at jallochowchow at gmail.com. It's the same spelling as the podcast, as the Facebook group, but there's no exclamation points in the email address. So uh, take that under advisement. I don't know if you can put exclamation points in an email address, but who knows? So a bit of news about the podcast. I have been in touch with our long lost leader, Matt Wall. I sent an email to Matt and also the Phantom Eric to just kind of put the feelers out for, hey, are you guys going to be available to do episode 100? Because um, we're kind of targeting November for that at this point, if we stay on the current uh, timeline that we're on. And I heard back from Matt who said, I may have some time. Um and wanted to know, you know, what our schedule was for recording. So um, I'm not promising anything, but it's possible that we may hear from Matt before the 100th episode if he's around. But I'm still keeping my fingers crossed that we will be able to find a date where we can um, coordinate time zones of California, Minnesota, Philadelphia, which is not a state, Pennsylvania, and uh, <laughs> Italy, all at the same time. Well, we've done it before with Matt. And he was in L.A., so I don't think it'd be too hard to squeeze Minnesota in there, would it? Right. Yeah, because I think where Eric is, it's an hour later than the West Coast time. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> the film we're covering today is the 1969 giallo or gothic giallo called The Doll of Satan mm. or La 
Bambola di Santana or Satana. Bambola di Satana. Bam- yeah. Bambola. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, spoiler alert, Satan is nowhere anywhere near the film. <laughs> But um, and did we see a doll, like an actual? Yeah, there was. Oh, actually, there, there is a, a doll. There's a doll. Yeah, there is a doll, and it got so. it got a point for that on the Jalo score. Cool. But yeah, the doll of Satan. We'll get into the details in a little bit. But this, I'm still on the fence between deciding that this film is absolute genius or a complete waste of time. <laughs> I, I haven't decided yet. Uh, maybe uh-huh. I'll maybe I'll come to that conclusion today. In other news, there is something I wanted to bring up to you, Mr. Al, and also to the group. We have probably a list of proto Jolly that I wanted to cover, but also not enough slots before episode 100 to do them all. To be completely honest, I'm starting to get tired of proto Jolly, and only because I know what comes after and I'm really ready to watch the stuff from the early to mid-70s mm-hmm. because we've spent so much time on the early stuff. But uh, so, in other words, after we get to episode 100 and, and then move forward from there, I kind of don't want to go back to um, Proto Jolly for a while. And there's a film in the list that I thought we should cover called Naked Violence. And as I think more and more about it, I'm thinking about crossing that one off because I watched it, I think I only watched it once, and then I scanned through it just recently to just remind myself about it. But it's not very good, Hmm. although to define good, it's kind of difficult. The movie starts off with a bunch of kids in a classroom, and the teacher, who is, I guess, somewhat desirable and attractive... And later on, she's attacked and raped and I think killed. The majority of the film is the police inspector interrogating people in, you know, in a small room. There are a few outside scenes, but it's mostly dialogue. And then you finally get to the end and, you know, it just, I think it kind of, I want to skip it. So the alternative to that one is a film called The Third Eye which has Franco Nero in it. And it's listed in most people's um, anthologies as a giallo, a a proto-giallo. But I think someone mentioned that Joe D'Amato, who we keep bringing up episode after episode, uh, Joe D'Amato wrote or made a movie called Beyond the Darkness or Buo Omega. I don't know how to pronounce it. Buyo Omega. Buyo. What does Buyo mean? Dark or darkness? Because I I thought that there was an alternate title to his movie called Buried Alive, I think, but I I can't remember. Yeah, I get that confused a lot. That's the one with the little short guy who looks a little too old to be breastfeeding off his mother. And then there's like zombies or... That's Burial Ground. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that's that's a great zombie movie. I recommend it to everybody. It's a party movie for sure. But um, Buried Alive is Joe D'Amato's kind of sleazy 80s cannibal uh, necrophiliac movie. There's not actually any um, corpse intercourse in the movie. It's just kind of assumed. His girlfriend dies at the very beginning of the episode. or I'm sorry, at the very beginning of the movie. 
and he goes to the funeral home and steals her corpse and brings her back and takes all of her blood out and embalms her and, and just other wacky shit happens throughout the movie. But the only reason I bring that up is because somebody mentioned that the third eye was the inspiration for Joe D'Amato's movie. Hmm. So it might be more entertaining than Naked Violence. And if we have to choose between the two, I'd rather do that one. Okay. But I'll leave it up to you guys. Were there any films that you had on that poll that did not receive any votes at all? No, I think they all got votes. Doll of Satan got seven votes. The one That's what we're covering today. Psych Out for Murder got nine. The Third Eye got four. Naked Violence got three. Date for a Murder got one. And Death Knocks Twice got six. Wow. So if you go by the polling we would cut out Date for a Murder and keep Naked Violence in the list. I've watched Date for a Murder a bunch of times. It reminds me very much of Carnal Circuit. Like, it's that kind of a vibe. Right. But you said one of them has to go so that the episode 100 lands in November? Or that we're done by episode 100? Right. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with the timing, but for the... Let's see, this is 96. So we have four more shows to do. 96, 97, 98, 99. So we have three more films available before episode 100. Right. And we have four films left from that list. Yep. Well, you could make the executive decision to scratch one or maybe just put it in the pocket for later. Yeah, I mean, if I had my way, we would never talk about naked violence just because it was just boring. Okay. Really, really boring. So I will ask all of you to make that decision, and then I may just make my own decision regardless. Ladies and gentlemen, now on to our feature film, our deep dive. It is the 1969 film called The Doll of Satan. Okay, so this film, I'm really excited to talk about because I had a lot of fun doing my notes for it, looking through the scene by scenes and picking out weird shit that was just going on. Let me give you a quick couple of pieces of information about the film that I feel are necessary to bring up right at the beginning. And then Al, you can take over and let us know about the production notes. So the, the film itself... If you haven't seen it, you can find it on YouTube. I'll put a link in the show notes. 
but be advised that it is an edited version of the full version of the film. The YouTube version is an hour 25, and the version that I have, which I guess is uncut, is about five minutes longer. And I made uh, some notes as we go through as to which parts are not in the YouTube version. So um, the second thing I wanted to bring up is that um, this was recently released in, in a Blu-ray format by 88 Films. And we can talk about this in more detail as we get in, but um, this is one of those films that does not do well with a better uh, resolution. <laughs> it is, at least the version I watched, it is very, very bright in every scene, which is, you know, look, you can make the argument that, hey, I wish they would brighten it up a little bit because the dark scenes are so dark, I don't know what's going on. Um, and that's a valid point, but this movie, when it's supposed to be a scene completely in the dark, except for maybe a candle, it still looks like they have 300 watt bulbs, you know, shining on everything to the point where there's a mirror that the one character is looking into, but it's not a mirror. It's just nothing. Um, <laughs> and I think in a lower resolution, you wouldn't be able to tell whether it was a mirror or a fake mirror. So uh, be advised that, you know, and I have to go back and see if there's a couple of older versions from DVD, maybe on Cinemageddon that I could pull down and, and compare to this version. Uh, but it's very, very bright. Uh, is there anything else I want to say? No, not really. There's, um, there's really no real noticeable or exciting music in the film at all. Um, so there really isn't much to talk about with composers and, and that sort of thing. So, um, Al, why don't you, um, do us the honors of giving us the production notes and then we'll get into the scene by scene. Okay. This film was released in 1969 by a pair of production companies, one being Chine Diorama and the other, an outfit called Rewind Film. Uh, as far as I could tell, those were both Italian companies at the time. And I found out that this film in 1969 grossed $118 million Italian lire, which sounds like a lot, <laughs> but converted to dollars and adjusted for inflation to 2023 comes out to $1,561,972. So, not a whole lot. I could not find information about the original budget, so I don't know if it was a bomb or not. And for comparison's sake, I found the uh, the net income from, uh, what do you call it, Blood and Black Lace. And I adjusted that, and it came out to about the same, but that film was five years earlier. And if we're looking at just the box office receipts, I would say they were almost even. But since then, I'm pretty sure more people have watched and bought copies of Blood and Black Lace than this. So in the long run, I would guess that Bava's film was more successful. 
Okay, that makes sense. Um, but just to just to add on that for a second, if you if you're saying that the movie grossed the 2023 equivalent of a little over a million bucks, um, mm-hmm. if we had, like you said, a, a little bit more information about if you adjusted f- for 2023 inflation of its budget, then we would know, like you said, whether it was profitable or not. Exactly. But, you know, a million dollars in 1969. Yeah. I mean, I don't, obviously the big one is when bird with the crystal plumage came out. I forget how much money it made. I think it was like in the billions of Lira maybe. Right. Um, so that one really stands out obviously as, you know, a huge success. Well, I think a lot of that profit for Bird came from markets outside of Italy. And yeah. I'm I couldn't find any information about how far a doll of Satan traveled outside of Italy. Um I have seen a German movie poster for it. Obviously right. it was released in America as well and probably England and other English speaking countries. Um, but I'm pretty sure it didn't have the staying power as bird or anything that Baba ever did. So it's longevity, uh, didn't last as long, I would say. Right. And, uh, you might understand why when we're done discussing <laughs> this, <laughs> but, uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself. The director, his name is Ferruccio Casapinta, and this is the one and only directing credit and writing credit that he has. And uh, that might be a clue. And along those lines, <laughs> I have a quote from the film star, Erna Schurter, who plays the part of Elizabeth. She was quoted regarding this film. Casa Pinto was an idiot who didn't know how to do anything. I think he had a grant or something like that. I don't remember exactly. The film was stopped and then resumed. It was a troubled thing, which we shot in Abruzzo. And parenthetical, Abruzzo is the region east of Lazio, which is the region that contains Rome. Okay. So it's on the other side of the... The bootleg from Rome. I've had okay. uh, wine from Abruzzo. Yeah. Monte okay. the Abruzzo. That's what I've, I remember that. Okay. Uh, she goes on to say, however, there were a lot of professionals in the crew. I well remember Nini Reginato as production secretary who worked with Pietro Jeremy. Again, parenthetical, Pietro Jeremy was a very well-respected Italian comedy director in Italy in the 50s and 60s. Uh, She ends, well, the quote of hers ends with, we finished the film and the IMAIE, which is like the, uh, the Actors Guild equivalent for Italian performers, still sends me the royalties for the television broadcasts. Huh. So... 
she did not have a good time making this film, but she appreciates that she still gets checks. And surprisingly, they're still showing this on TV. So, huh. good for them. But the, the main takeaway is she starts off with, Casapinta was an idiot who didn't know how to do anything. <laughs> well, and, um, and it was do you know whether or not that quote was natively in English or if it was translated? I don't know what language she speaks. Well, I found that particular quote on the Italian Wikipedia page for this film. Okay. And in the English Wikipedia page, it has just the the first line, but the rest of it about uh, the troubled shoot and everything came from the Italian Wikipedia page. So, all right, let me check. I'm looking at the Italian Wikipedia page. There's her quote. And... Okay, this looks like it comes from an interview from June 2007. Or an, an article from 2007. Uh, in a magazine called Nocturno Dossier, volume 59, page 32. So, let's see if she was still alive in 2007. Which I guess I should know because I wrote the notes. Yeah, she's still around. Yeah, so that was a quote from a magazine that looks like it was uh, a European magazine called Nocturno Dossier. Okay. So I would guess that was an Italian. And the way that she mentions the I-M-A-I-E, which is a very Italian organization... The Mutual Institute for the Tutelidae of uh, Artistic Actors and Esecutori and uh, people that help make films, basically. Okay. And she, uh, her name sounds pretty German, so I'd assume she's European. Yeah. Okay. It's It says that she was born in Naples. Uh, okay. In Wikipedia, uh, as Emma... Costantino. So I guess oh. um, Erna Schur is her nom de plume, but she's not a writer, so it's oh, yeah. not a nom de plume. <laughs> and she was in um, Strip Nude for Your Killer. She sure was. Anyway, I don't want to step on your production credit <laughs> toes here. Because I'm, you know, I'm real time Googling while you talk. So go ahead. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh uh, yeah, so I'll get back to her in a second. Uh, so Ferruccio Casapinta, his only uh, directing thing, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the writers include Ferruccio Casapinta. As I said before, this is his only writing credit. But other writing credits go to Giorgio Cristalini, who uh, lived between 1921 and 1999. He has 12 writing credits, including comedies, westerns, and crime films. And Giorgio Cristellini also has nine directing credits, including mostly films that he wrote. Another credited writer for this is Carlo Lori. There's no biographical information about him, but this was the only thing he is credited for. 
The fourth credited writer was Alfredo Medori. He gets the credit for writing the dialogue specifically. Um, Good for him. Well, surprisingly, because the dialogue I thought was one of the more interesting aspects of this film. (laughs) He has 14 writing credits, including a film from 69 called The Brazen Women of Balzac. And if you are an Edwige Fenech completist, I cannot stress (laughs) enough, you need to find this film. It's uh, is worth watching, even if you turn the volume down and put on some smooth jazz or something to listen to. <laughs> it's uh, it's worth tracking down. Uh, the cinematographer. What's it, what's it called again? The Brazen Women oh, okay. of Balzac. Balzac, like the the French writer, B A L Z A C. Right, not your testicles. Yeah, that'd be a whole different subgenre. <laughs> <laughs> and dude if Edwige Fenech was in anything referring to a ball sack you could bet that would have been on blu-ray and 4k years ago um okay the cinematographer and editor is Francesco Atteni he has six cinematography credits Nothing interesting, but I did notice that he had a camera and electrical department credit for The Embalmer, which we covered a few episodes back. So, there's a cool little tie-in there. So, so garbage garbage sticks to the wall for more than one film, I guess. Well, it's good to know that if you uh, if you do well enough with camera and electrics on something like The Embalmer, you can aspire to cinematographer for something like this. Yeah. Apparently, this was the ceiling for Francesco Atteni. Then maybe he won the lottery or something. Or <laughs> I hope he lived long and prospered. Now, is there a difference between um, Franco Atteni and Francesco Atteni? Because they both have the same last name. Oh, you um, mean on the on the IMDb? On, IMD, on IMDb, Franco is credited as the editor, and Francesco is credited as the cinematographer. And I don't know if they're the same person. Okay, let's see here. I don't mean to. Boy, I'm really pulling apart your production notes this time. This I think it is the same person because. Let me see. Sound and reproduction makeup costume. Okay, Francesco Atteni. Okay, I click on that. Yeah, okay, I see Franco right there. Known for the embalmer. And Franco Atteni. Huh. I mean, it's clearly going to be two different entries in IMDb, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not the same person. You know, Franco Attendee is listed as an editor. Francesco is listed as cinematographer. Well, I don't know. Maybe I screwed up. Because it looks like Franco Attendee didn't have anything to do with the embalmer. So, okay, good catch. I guess they're brothers. Or yeah, or maybe it's just maybe it's or... just the same person with two different names and 
you know, you're looking at the, the IMDB information for each one separately, but it could possibly be merged together if people, if somebody knows the real answer. But anyway. Yeah, or I just didn't pay enough attention and saw Frank something, something, or Tenny and went right. with it. Okay, cool. Uh, locations. The castle that you see in the distant shots, like at the opening and closing and periodically throughout the film, that was Palazzo Ruspoli, which was, well, is a castle near Rome that was built between the 9th and the 10th century after Christ. So, uh, AD, uh, I guess. Wow. And, uh. I love when I read European stuff like this and people in the States. I mean, I remember in Tennessee, people would brag about something being a hundred years old and oh my God. <laughs> you know, and yeah. Okay. Um, the closer scenes to the castle, like when they're walking around outside, that was shot at another castle called Castello Borghese, which is also near Rome. But that one is a much younger castle because it was built between the 12th and the 14th century A.D. The other scenes, including the uh, the outdoor scenes where they're walking around uh, in the woods and in the fields, were shot in the region of Abruzzo, which we've already mentioned. Uh, okay, let's see, I thought I had some music notes somewhere. Yeah, the music, which you have already spoiled, is not worth really talking about. But it was done by a man named Franco Potenza, who lived from 22 to 11. And he has 29 composing credits between 57 and 73. Uh, nothing that I had heard of before. Now, moving on to the cast. This will be relatively quick. I know this is the part of the podcast where... It's kind of like the drum solo in a concert. This is where everybody gets up to go to the bathroom or buy a t-shirt in the lobby. <laughs> Erna Schurer, who we've already discussed. Uh, she was born in Naples in 42. She plays Elizabeth, who is our protagonist. She has 41 acting credits between 60 and 87 including a pseudo-jolly called Your Hands on My Body, which came out in 1970, where she co-starred with Lino Capolicchio, who you might remember as the protagonist of The House with the Laughing Windows. She was in a 74 film called Carnal Revenge, co-starring with Femi Benussi. So, if you've been yeah. following along, you know that's on my watch list. And, as we said, she was in Strip Nude for Your Killer from 1975. And one of my favorite credits of hers, well, one that I thought was kind of funny. Uh, I don't want to get this wording exactly right. Deported Women of the SS Special Section. So... <laughs> <laughs> that is Nazi exploitation crossed with women in prison, and she plays the evil Nazi warden. What is there not to love about that? <laughs> and that is, should go on your short list for sure. Oh, obviously, straight to the top. 
And I noticed in some of the, uh, one of the Facebook groups, I think it was uh, the Holix group, somebody was talking about this film. And it seemed like at least one of the commenters was a huge fan of Erna Schur. And I I wonder if they've seen that. And mm. they would think. But Okay. Elizabeth, who is played by Erna Schur, she has a boyfriend in this film named Jack. Jack is played by Roland Carey. Roland Carey is a Swiss man who... Uh, was born in 33 and died in 19, all in Switzerland. But in between, he racked up 26 acting credits between 51 and the last year of his life, 2019. Uh, his work included everything from peplums and westerns, especially early on. And then he went on to do a lot of TV stuff. Uh, there is a woman who is uh, kind of creeping around the castle, but sometimes we see her out in the field painting, but we're not really sure what she's up to. Her name is Claudine. Yeah. She is played by Aurora Batista. And I noticed on this IMDb page, it conflates her with a Spanish actress named Aurora Bautista. Yes. Who I is a... Too completely different actress and i was a little disappointed when i did not see aurora bautista i kept waiting for her to show up but uh aurora bautista who is in this film only has seven acting credits between 66 and 69 and i guess she found another line of work or something after that <laughs> okay uh, one of the country gentlemen who lives near the castle and is interested in buying this castle, his name is Reynaud. He is played by Ettore Ribotta. No biographical information, but he has 44 acting credits between 59 and 96, including The Last Man on Earth from 64 that he co-starred in with Vincent Price. The governess of this castle, her name is Carol. She is played by Lucia Bomez. Again, no biographical information, but she has nine acting credits between 63 and 70, including peplums or sword and sandals and westerns. The butler of this castle is named Edward. He is played by Manlio Salvatore. Again, no biographical information. 18 acting credits between 60 and 72, including an uncredited bit part in Mario Bava's Danger Diabolic, and also Bava's Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs, which seems like a kind of comedic spoof on the James Bond films. Yeah, it sounds like it. Okay. Um... An elder gentleman who is a friend of the deceased owner of the castle. Uh, the character's name is Mr. Shinton. He is played by Domenico Ravenna. Again, no biographical information. I'm starting to get the feeling that everybody associated with this film tried to live in privacy <laughs> online. <laughs> Distance themselves from it. Yeah. 
<laughs> 16 acting credits between 64 and 75, including Sweet Body of Deborah in 1968. And he was also in Danger Diabolic by Baba. Okay, there is a woman, a hand, well, let's say disabled, unfortunate woman tucked away in a small room in the castle. Not to be confused with uh, the one from Murder Clinic, but her name is Jeanette, <laughs> and here she is played by Teresa Ronki. No biographical information. Ten acting credits between 69 and 98. Uh, she did three other movies and everything else was TV stuff. And the groundskeeper for this castle's name is Andre. He is played by Eugenio Galladini. No biographical information. But he has 52 acting credits between 39 and 72, including a lot of peplum, westerns, and some comedies. And just as a personal note, this Andre character reminds me a lot of my landlord. He's like <laughs> the, the separated at birth twin of my landlord. Wow. So. And that is it for my production notes. All right. Well, thank you very much for all that info, Al. Uh, I appreciate it. And um, I think that you may have said this and I missed it, but um, the interior stuff for this film was not filmed in either of those two castle locations, right? No, I don't think so. Because it it looks very much like, um, was it not the last film we did, but the film before that maybe that had curtains everywhere um, for walls. Um, I noticed that a lot in this movie as well. Oh, that was, that was the embalmer, wasn't it? With the curtains for walls? No, no, the, uh, yeah, 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 you're right. The embalmer, yep. Okay. Uh, okay. A couple of other things that um, I wanted to bring up besides the fact that the film is very bright is that they really had a problem with focusing in this movie. <laughs> and so I have little footnotes where the focus is off. And my assumption is that they didn't have somebody available to, you know, change the focus in real time while the camera's moving. So, you know, there's one scene where, you know, they have the, the person that you're looking at is out of focus, but by the time the camera moves to where it's going to stop, everything is in focus. So I'm assuming hmm. that that's kind of what happened there. Um, Cause Matt has been real kind of, like um, real, real helpful in kind of giving, you know, some insider information about, you know, what it was like to make movies back then. And, you know, you had somebody moving the camera around, uh, but you had to also have somebody making sure that if the camera was moving back and forth on a particular axis, that you were also moving the focus. And I think that, you know, they would practice and they would make markers on the, on the lens to show where you needed to end up while you were filming. And, mm-hmm. and it doesn't look like they did that with this movie. So uh, anyway, so let's talk about the opening sequence. And 
just because I have, I've, I had OCD when I was doing the notes for this movie. <laughs> I, um, I actually labeled them from timestamps and I won't necessarily go through and say, okay, now we're at, you know, three minutes and whatever, but <clears throat> it helps me to maybe make it easier to find what we're talking about. If we need, if I need to jump to the scene, um, okay. kind of know where everything is. Of course, I didn't realize, uh, cause I used the YouTube version to do the scene by scene notes and didn't realize that the, some of the nude scenes were cut out. So my time stamps actually aren't exactly right as you get later and later into the film. But anyway, uh, that's oh, so you movie. didn't see the nude version at all or just I did. For, for this. I did. Okay. I did watch the nude, the, the, you know, the uncensored version or the uncut version. But when I was right. doing my notes, I was watching the YouTube version okay. on my computer. Right. So, um, now it's important, I think to mention right away that, um, they give away a lot of information within the first, I don't know, 10 seconds of the movie. In the opening uh, credits? Before the credits even happen. Oh, really? Uh, so we've got a bunch of different shots in succession, like edits, where we start with um, a, a shot of the castle framed by this out-of-focus pink tree or flower or what have you. And then we I have, think that's a cloud of radiation, isn't it? Yeah, it could be. <laughs> and it made me, it made me immediately think of, um, uh, five dolls for an August moon. That oh shot. yeah. Uh, right. With the, the house on the, the cliff over the, yep. the beach or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is kind of a Baba touch because that's obviously a piece of glass with, pink paint stuck in front of the camera. Right. And from what I, I understand, yeah, the, um, the, the five dolls movie, they did some sort of, you know, like manual effect for that, that shot. Mm -hmm. I yeah. don't remember what it was though. Well, I think in that it was the whole house was just something that he painted on a piece of glass and yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I read in an article on that Nocturno uh, dossier website that this act, this director, Casa Pinta, was trying very hard to be like Mario Bava. Okay. And we'll get into some more of that. Yeah. Some more aspects of that as we go. Sure. Definitely. So there's a very quick, um, rapid kind of swipe transition. And then the next thing we know, we see somebody who looks like he's dead being pulled away uh, or dragged through the, through the dirt, but he's on screen for two seconds. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if you, you know, if you didn't pay attention to that because you were still, you know, getting settled and situated and grabbing your popcorn, you know, you may have missed it. <laughs> um, and I, and I don't even mean like, I, and I'm talking about modern in, in the modern day, but I can't even imagine you know, if you went to see this in the theater, what you may have not seen because they added so much stuff in the very beginning. But right after that, there's this crash zoom on this guy standing in the middle of a field with a three piece suit on. And I think, <laughs> I think that's, um, Paul Renau or Renault. 
Renault, yeah. Is that him? Yeah, I, I think so. Because he's only on screen for two seconds in this. And, and the what's next... the hell that has to do with anything? Okay. Right. Don't know. And then, of course, we have this little, what would you call this vehicle? It's three wheels. It looks kind of like a truck with a flatbed on the back of it. Oh, those vehicles, besides Ferrari and Lamborghini, are the pride of Italian automotive <laughs> industry. <laughs> those are known as Ape, A-P-E, and that is the Italian word for B. And the reason they call them that is because of the annoying sound those little tiny motors make as they're going up and down the, the road. <laughs> it is basically, when you open the door, it's kind of like uh, the front end of a scooter Okay, that you would sit on. And sometimes it's kind of widened out a little bit so somebody, like a little kid, could sit on either side of you as you're driving it. But it doesn't have a steering wheel. It has what's like a, the handlebars of a scooter inside. Okay. And as you see, when once he pulls up, that it has basically a little bed in the back, like a pickup truck. Right. And the motors are very small, so small that you don't even need like a full driver's license to drive it. They have different classes of driver's licenses that you can get. Uh, so this is basically like driving a uh, a moped with a big bed in the back and okay. they do come in different sizes you can get some that are a little more serious but these things still exist today i see them several times a week and there's one guy that lives somewhere behind me that drives his right in front of my house a couple times <laughs> a week and does it sound like a bee it yeah it does <laughs> it's um well have you ever Heard like a Vespa driving past yeah. you or in front of you? Sure. Okay. Take that basic same sound and crank the high end on it by about wow. half. It's okay. it's a lot more nasally and, you know, it's, it's annoying as hell. <laughs> Down south, where uh, we go for the summer sometime, and where I lived during middle school, those things were everywhere. Wow. There are a lot more mopeds and scooters and ape down south than there are up here. And if this was filmed in Abruzzo, uh, that's kind of in between. That's like mid-Italy. Okay. But it's still a very agricultural region compared to the north. But yeah, they're just kind of like the like tractors or Italian pickup trucks, basically. Okay. Well, I thought it was cool looking, so yeah, um, I had never seen anything like it <laughs> on my bucket list, you know, so that I can feel like a full one hundred percent Italian and maybe finally be accepted by these uh snobs <laughs> around here. I want to have a Vespa, I want to have a Cinquecento, you know those tiny little cars, yeah, yep, yeah, the ones that make a Volkswagen beetle look like a truck uh, <laughs> and an ape. And I'm going to have one red and one white and one green, and I'm going to park them in my driveway to create like a image of an Italian flag. 
and then I'll know that I've been embraced <laughs> by my homeland. <laughs> I can't wait to see that picture. You're going to post it on the website. Yeah, I sure yes. will. All right. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. All right. So the vehicle that we were talking about, the Ape, mm-hmm. um, it arrives in the front of the castle and we see Andrea for the first time or Andre. And this is a really important scene that we will never ever in a million years realize how important it is until you watch the film for the second time. Um, because all of the information that you're getting about this little truck and what this guy is bringing to the house and everything else is kind of returned to at the very end. And it's part of the twist or it's part of the, not even the twist, but it's part of the, the, the revealing information about the mystery. So we'll get to that way later, but, um, they, uh, the, the, the person, you know, the little courier guy goes to the door, knocks on it and Edward comes out and, um, he mentions something about the fact that, um, you're late mm-hmm. and, um, as they continue to walk and bring the, the goods that were brought from the town through into the castle, we run into uh, Carol. Her name's Carol, right? Yeah. And she's, um, I think she's hot. I like her glasses look. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I've noticed throughout the movie that whenever she's pretending to be the upstanding governess, she keeps her glasses on. And whenever she's getting involved in doing something, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a little bit more interesting. Yeah. yeah. She's got her glasses off. So yeah, it's kind of like a Clark Kent situation. Yeah. Now she also mentions to the delivery boy that he's late, which I mean, you know, uh, we, I don't know why they really needed to, to emphasize that, but they did. And then we immediately, so they go in the house and they bring the, the stuff in and the delivery boy walks away. And then we immediately cut to uh, Elizabeth and Jack driving in this two seater sportster. Um, and they're talking about, I can't wait to finally see this famous castle. Now I'm going to jump ahead for a second because right after that discussion, they go into the credit sequence. And after the credit sequence, they go back to, um, we, we, we eventually go back to the two of them driving in the car again. So my take on this whole thing is that they filmed all of these scenes that were supposed to be in the beginning of the movie and then just decided at some point, Hey, you know, we better tell the audience what the name of this movie is and, um, give some you know, give some credit information for our actors and the rest of our crew. Um, so let's just throw it in right here uh, in the middle of this discussion that they're having while they're driving up to the castle. So yeah. um, the, the credits start rolling and it's like upbeat jazz uh, with like a flute and a clarinet. Um, and anytime you have jazz music with a flute in it, it just seems more lighthearted and up, upbeat than any of the other instruments that they use for, for jazz. Um, 
But while we're listening to this uh, swinging flute jazz, we see a whole bunch of stills. And the stills are all pictures from the film. Some of them are in black and white. Some of them are in color. Um, it doesn't really reveal too much of the secrets of the film, but, you know, we see... I, I think there are a few spoilers in okay. there. Okay. I'm looking through Like certain scenes of people getting strangled, <laughs> people right. fighting, and... Yeah, but it's it's so hard to, you know, with the with the credits over over um overlaying the images it's kind of hard to to make out who's who but you can definitely see the characters yeah there's a there's one still of elizabeth with the dark figure with his hands over her mouth um one of the other interesting things i noticed about these stills is that some of them look like they were cut like almost like a collage and right, placed on yeah. top of each other, especially mm-hmm. the last one. Cause I think they wanted to end with a shot of the castle. Yeah. The last one, it says Regia and the name of our director. And it's a picture of the castle looked in on from the front. And then there's like a, an obvious collage of the side of the castle pushed together to make it look like one shot, which is really kind of interesting, I guess. I don't know if it's, it's, if it's artistic or if it's just a cheap shortcut <laughs> or maybe both. Uh, I don't know. I mean, just at a glance, it does make the castle appear bigger than it is. Right. Right. And again, this may be another reason why, the Blu-ray is revealing some of these production shortcuts, as should we say? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if they did the montage this way uh, of the opening credits in order to be artistic or just because they wanted to make, you know, in, in a darker, less uh, lower resolution version of the film, you might not notice, you know, the fact that those two pictures are a collage. I don't know why I'm spending so much time on this. It doesn't really matter. Uh, well, I think the, I don't know. I think one of the more interesting aspects of this whole movie is the opening credits, even though it kind of bugs me when films use scenes that occur later in a film as part of the opening credits. Right. Um, but the fact that it bounces between black and white in color and they do this collage effect on several of the, uh, the name cards and things. I thought it was more interesting than it could have been. Yeah. And it almost Uh, looks like the black and white shots may have been stills that they mm -hmm. took with an actual camera. Whereas the color ones look like grabs that came directly from the film because they're out of focus and it looks like, they're a little blurry. Right. So I don't know um, if the, you know, if they had some promotional like lobby card type shots that they did in black and white and they use those, but yeah, interesting. An interesting opening sequence. 
So after the credits are done and we uh, we see that, we, we get another shot of the castle. We zoom into uh, one of the windows to indicate we're going inside. And then the next thing we know, we have a meal that is being um, attended to by Edward. And uh, we have Carol and Mr. Shinton talking about what's going on and the fact that uh, this uh, uncle has died and his only heir being Elizabeth, who's driving up um, to the castle to see what's going on. Now, can you do me a favor and give me the name of the uncle, like his last name? I was trying to write it down and a couple of times I, I thought I got it right, but. Okay, it is Ball. B-A-L-L. And then depending on where you see it written, sometimes it's all one word or right. it's two. But it's Balyanon. Uh, J-A-N-O-N. And the, the J is spelled like a, and will pronounce like a Y. Okay. Balyanon. And they're trying very hard to make you think this is France, even though it was all shot in Abruzzo. Uh, so... I would put a French accent and call it Balianon. Okay. uh, Yeah, I just have him in my notes as uncle because I was not going to be writing Baljanin 30 times throughout my notes. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, that's what I did too. So Baljanin is the name of the last name of the guy who owns the castle, who has died. Right. I'm glad you brought that up about they're making it, they're trying to make it appear that they're in France because there's one scene where the guy brings the telegram mm-hmm. to Elizabeth. And when he leaves, she says, Arrivederci. And he says, Bonjour or vice versa. And I didn't understand why they did that, but they flip flop like that throughout this entire film. There are places where they will say buongiorno, but then the subtitles say bonjour or they'll say miss Elizabeth and it'll say mademoiselle. And in yes. And there's a scene where Jack is sitting outside reading a newspaper Mm -hmm. and the newspaper is Le Figaro. Which sounds Italian, but that right. is a French newspaper. So while they were filming this, somewhere in the middle of Abruzzo, somebody had to run to a newsstand and <laughs> buy a copy of a French newspaper just for that one shot. And the way that you'll see a lot of berets in this film, too. Yeah. Okay. And I'm not trying well, to stereotype berets as strictly a French thing because I have seen older Italian men wearing berets, but I right. think they go a little over the top in this. Well, you also have to wonder, like, did somebody in the crew have one of those newspapers laying around and they just gave it to them? You know, they, they may not have made a special trip to France just to get the paper, but. Well, it's not hard to find other European newspapers in a, even a, just a local newsstand. That's true. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, the information that we get from this dinner or meal or whatever it is, um, is not much. It's basically, you know, uh, Mr. Shinton is basically saying, you know, um, this isn't a party. Someone died. So I don't know why you're bringing a whole bunch of friends up to the castle. Um, and you know, uh, 
Carol says, you know, they're, they're young. They don't understand seriousness. So, uh, meanwhile, she's, you know, nuts. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) so after this scene, we go, to another quick scene of Elizabeth and Jack continuing to drive. He makes mention that it's great to have a two seater because you don't have to drive with anybody else except the person you want to be with. And um, I I guess to just reinforce the idea that there are more people coming besides the two of them. Um, Let's see. I just want to speed up the playback here. So I make sure that should I do this at double speed? Yeah, double speed's probably good. Hang on just a second. I'm going to jot down where we are so I can edit this out. I'm trying my best to go through the, <laughs> to, to, to make an effort to go by the scene, go through the scene by scene and cut some shit out. Okay. Okay. Um, so after the drive, uh, we're back to the castle and this time another meal in the same exact room. And we have six people at the table. We have Mr. Shinton, we have uh, Carol, we have Elizabeth, we have Jack. And then we have the other two people whose names I really don't remember because they're barely in the movie. They are Gerard and Blanche. No. Okay. Very French names. Yeah. And um, Blanche reminds me of Joan Cusack. I don't know why. Um, but that's the first thing that came to my mind when I saw her. And you know, that actress, this is the only film she's in. So I didn't bother putting her in the, looking uh, her up. Yep. Yeah. I wouldn't either. <laughs> yeah. And I think the, the guy, Gerard, he only did four films. This was the third within like two years. And then he skipped like 15 years and did one more film. But, oh, uh, okay. He wasn't exactly setting the thespian world on fire. So, okay. Yeah. Good for him. But even in this scene, you know, we'll probably talk about the, how bright the movie is in a lot of mm-hmm. places, but even in this scene, the fact that it's so bright, it's great that you can see all the detail that you can see these very specific looking wine glasses and goblets and, and, um, whatever the other thing they call it that they hold the wine in like a decanter or whatever decanter. Um, yeah. And the candelabras, but I mean like it's so bright. The candelabras don't really need to be lit. And <laughs> the whole, the whole thing looks so cheap and um, second rate. And you've got these suits of armor in the background and this, this weird looking like thing in the center in between the two, uh, suits of arms like it's like some sort of a oh i know like the sword there's four swords behind each uh suit of armor and then there's this thing in the middle i mean obviously we're gonna see a lot of these weapons put to use later on and yeah this is actually... the the checkoff swords room right right like right. checkoff's I... gun yeah, I should probably um, put another thing in the Jalo score that says uh, medieval uh, devices. Yeah. You know, either swords or <laughs> torture racks or whatever. Or this could be the dining hall for Slaughter Hotel. 
It, dude, it totally reminds me of Slaughter Hotel. It's like got the same yeah. vibe. Um, Which was the same as the murder clinic. Right. And, so. and, and also libido, the interior of the various scenes in libido also have that same thing going on with the, with the medieval decorations. Mm -hmm. uh, so right after this uh, discussion, they're in the middle of a discussion talking about, so this time the, 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 the conversation starts with Carol and Mr. Shinton kind of pushing this agenda that will be pushed throughout the movie um, that Elizabeth should sell the castle once it's hers. And, you know, the other people in on, at the table are saying, oh, I wouldn't get rid of this. I wouldn't sell this castle. It's, it doesn't even make any sense. Why would he want to sell it if he was such a great lover of antiques and, you know, mm -hmm. all this other stuff. Um, but they stop in the middle of that conversation to jump to a cafe scene. And we see somebody putting <laughs> coins into a jukebox and um, some, I wrote in, in parentheses, conservatively dressed hippies dancing. Uh, because yeah. that, that is a Jalo score criteria point. They don't really look like hippies, but they are dancing. And we have lots of curtains on the walls. And <laughs> not only do we have curtains on the walls, but we have this like fake brick thing that we see throughout um, yeah, the, the scenes uh, in here. And I don't know the, like if that's, is that like a common decorative thing in, you know, uh, late 60s Italy? Or is this just something they did to make the, you know, to do props for the movie? I don't know. I have seen fake brick wallpaper before. But I can't remember exactly where it was, and okay. it wasn't like all over the place. <laughs> the fact that I remember it means it was uh, something that was unusual. Yeah, definitely. But uh, I don't know. That might have been a thing at the time. But and I'm and not there's sure. there's one girl in the dancing group with um. She's got like a blue and black plaided skirt and a green sweater. She's absolutely gorgeous. She's on screen yeah. a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, I have in my notes her and the one in the red sweater. Yeah. I think they look better than any of the, the actresses that have speaking parts, but I don't know. The the guy dancing with the purple sweater. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He is an inspiration to me. Because for all of my life, I have absolutely refused to get on a dance floor. I mean, I've done it a couple times, but I was totally shit-faced and or super horny. But <laughs> as a rule of thumb, I refuse to dance. Right. No matter what. This guy has inspired me because he stands there with his <laughs> arms straight down. His back is ramrod straight. Yep. He kind of just... Uh, he kind of wiggles his shoulders back and forth and he leans forward and backward kind of slowly and he's paying no attention to the rhythm at all. And when he feels like it, he just stops and he steps off to the side to sip a soda through out of a <laughs> bottle with a straw. And then he goes right back to it. So and uh, no facial expressions whatsoever while he's dancing. He doesn't give a shit. And he's so <laughs> confident. He even looks dead into the camera like, yeah, yeah, I'm the man. That, 
<laughs> the next time I'm anywhere near a dance floor, I'm going to bust this guy's moves and I'm going to tell everybody, hey, this is the doll of Satan. You can't, you can't right. touch this, right? Yeah, we should bring it back. Yeah. The doll of Satan dance. Yeah. And it reminds me of um, the Seinfeld episode where the one woman would never shake her or move her arms when she walked. I don't know if you ever saw that one. <laughs> I probably have. Yeah. Well, I thought you were so, going to mention the one where Elaine Bennis dances. Oh yeah. Well that's, yeah, that's, that's a different, a that's a different thing altogether. <laughs> uh, okay. So after we are treated to this dance uh, insanity, we get Claudine who walks in and she's wearing, I, I, again, I, I just want to make mention of, of, of some of the fashion in here. It's very conservative. Um, but I think Al, uh, I think Matt would have appreciated some of the fashion in here. I think later on Claudine is wearing this jacket when she's kind of snooping around the castle that I think Matt would Mm -hmm. like. Um, she's very pretty too. Yeah. So Claudine goes in and sits down and is talking with the, the cafe owner. And then this guy who's sitting at the table by himself walks over and starts talking to her. And, you know, the, the buzz about town in this cafe and throughout the movie is that the guy who owns the castle died and his niece is coming up. Like everybody seems to know that that's happening. Um, the phone rings in the cafe. Well, before that happens, the, the guy who's sitting by himself goes over and starts talking to Claudine and says something about, um, how are you doing with your sunsets? And she says, well, they don't stay long enough for me to be able to paint them. I need like two hour sunsets. And he says, why don't you, you paint still life? And, and she says, well, it's, they're not interesting enough. Villages are too static according to the Mm -hmm. um, subtitles. Anyway, the phone rings and it's for her. And um, she says, uh, all she really says is yes, yes, thank you. You don't hear um, the other end of the conversation. And when she hangs up the phone, this guy whose name eventually gets revealed as, hold on, Cordova? Yeah. Uh, He comes and says, oh, you know, he must really love you because he calls every day. And uh, she says, yeah, and he's very jealous. And Mm -hmm. um, so as to imply that whoever was calling her at the cafe is her boyfriend, um, which we find out later probably isn't. Um, But we don't know that for sure yet. So, uh, you know, we're introduced to her. We're introduced to him. He's very he's painted as being very suspicious looking, uh, sinister, but we don't know really why. Um, that scene ends and we go back to the dinner. Now, this time they have uh, it's a more extended scene than the original or, or the first part of the dinner. My notes say uh, Jack is annoyed that everyone is making light of the fact that Elizabeth's uncle has died and left her the castle. Carol insists that her uncle had the plan to sell, but Shinton says that he was never made aware of this. Then Elizabeth says, my uncle would have definitely told me if he wanted to sell the castle. He tells me everything. 
And then, of course, Carol takes offense to this because she's being accused, kind of, in, she's being inferred that she's not telling the truth. But then Elizabeth is like, well, maybe I didn't know my uncle as well as I thought I knew him. And she starts to get upset. And Jack says, look, um, we need to stop talking about this right now. I think that you should excuse us. Uh, it's been a long day and Elizabeth needs to go to bed. <laughs> so I, I like how the fiance sends the uh the the girlfriend to bed well jack but, is really an interesting character because he's not married to her and we find out right. later that they don't sleep in the same bed yet so they're they've got this kind of puritanical conservative thing going on mm-hmm. um but he's also you know jack is very much the pragmatic, like, you know, Elizabeth is nuts or she's under a lot of stress and I'm going to make some decisions on her behalf because she's clearly, you know, a crazy woman and, you know, crazy women really shouldn't be making decisions about financial matters. But we find yeah. all of that, we find all that out later as he's talking to other people in the movie. But for now, he kind of takes uh, control of the situation but and he I, does it in a way that kind of paints him as a red herring. Yeah. Kind of mm-hmm. like, is he trying to manipulate? Is he the scuzzball who's trying to take advantage of his girlfriend who, oops, I inherited a castle. Right. So we're not sure we can trust him at this point. Either. Yeah. he And he's definitely, you know, they, they film him in some shifty kind of shady looking facial expressions too. So well, um, he only has the one. Yeah, you're right. He only has one. He's Swiss, and he's the most neutral face in this whole damn film. (laughs) There you go. But um, bump. The whole thing about what Uncle Ball Janin wanted to do with the castle, whether he wanted to sell it or not, the guy's dead. The castle's mine. Kick bricks, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean... Never mind. Well, he never told me. Well, he hated this place, and and that's like the. Well, I I get the whole plot of the film hinges on whether or not she's going to believe that she needs to sell. But if I was her, I I just said oh, fuck that, because if I inherit something and I find out that whoever left it to me had these great big plans for it, they were going to paint it purple with lime green stripes. <laughs> tough shit it's mine now we're not doing that return the paint to Lowe's try to swap it out for I don't know <laughs> hardwood flooring or something <laughs> or more Come. curtains yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have so many paintings to hang up I better get more curtains yeah but. well I think that to play devil's advocate here it's quite possible that what they're trying to portray is that Elizabeth really wanted to honor her uncle's wishes, whatever they were, you know? So if he made some information available in his will that said, yeah, I want you to paint one of the rooms purple. I get the feeling that she would have done that, you know, just to honor the wishes. So, um, but you're right. I mean, all yeah, but this- she's not going to take any shit from the governess about whether or not she should do it. Right. Right. Or I wouldn't. I'd be like, uh, I disagree, and you're fired. Turn exactly. in your keys and get the fuck out. 
and exactly. change the locks when she's gone. But uh, that okay, I've gone on way too long about that. Point. <laughs> Considering it is the the least thing I have a problem with in this right. film, you okay. know, I want to save some, keep some powder driver later. <laughs> <laughs> so as they all stand up from the table. Um, Carol says, okay, I'm going to show you to your room. And as they go up to where the rooms are or up or over, or we don't really see steps, but, um, Elizabeth says, no, I don't want that room. I want this room. This is the room I always stayed in. And she runs into this room and all of a sudden kind of screams because there's this weird looking woman in a wheelchair and she's painted to look like she's much older than she is. I think she's holding a doll. Yeah, she is. Um, ding. Ding for the Jallo score. This woman is revealed to be someone named Jeanette, who was the uncle. By the way, if Matt was here, the uncle's name would be Ballgag. So we're going to call him Uncle Ballgag. Uncle Ballgag's secretary, Jeanette, who, mm-hmm. according to Carol, was paralyzed in an accident and is completely insane. Um, I don't know why you'd be insane from an accident, but maybe that was, just I a, think that's all bullshit. Yeah. I think she not. just has yeah. acute radiation sickness. <laughs> <laughs> she might. That's a good, that's a, that's definitely a good uh, observation. Okay. Um, so, you know, Elizabeth is kind of taken aback for a second. She's like, oh, I remember her. She was so beautiful and she was, I loved her so much and da 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 da. So uh next scene we see Carol and now she's in the non glasses mode. She's got her glasses off, she's got this little teddy. She's mm-hmm. this is where this is where we see the false uh the mirror with no mirror in it. Um again, I really believe that if you watched the original version of this before it was cleaned up and turned into a Blu-ray you wouldn't have noticed, you know, I don't, I don't know what the, the practical reason for not including the mirror is it probably just has to do with the reflection and the light and the light bouncing and obscuring, you know, the camera or. Yeah. Getting, Cause getting the camera the passes the behind her. Right? Yeah. right. And I think one of those, uh, like Erna Schurer said, Casa Pinto was an idiot and didn't know how to do anything. He probably insisted on having the camera pass behind the woman as she's looking into the mirror. And then he saw the dailies and was like, oh, shit, you can see the camera. And <laughs> they probably had to reset the whole shot. And then, I don't know, maybe one of the more professional, helpful people in the crew put that you know, cardboard, not a mirror, mirror thing up. <laughs> it's very possible. Yeah. Does it look to you like she's wearing a wig? Because as she's sitting there brushing that hair, I'm thinking, that's a wig. That's way too much hair to sit yeah. on top of somebody's head. I think so. Which I wonder why for that. But Well, maybe she's wearing a wig throughout the whole... Well, I don't know, because like her hair is... When she's wearing the glasses, her hair is pulled back, so I guess they want you to mm-hmm. to get the impression that you know she, she has long, flowing hair when you know she's trying to be a little bit less conservative. Yeah. 
The other funny part about the scene is that she goes to light her cigarette with the lighter <laughs> like two or three times and then it doesn't work. So she uses the candle. And I always ask that question of, was that in the script or what, you know, like. Yeah, dude, I had a whole paragraph in my notes written about that. It's like this bitch can't figure out. <laughs> she got, she has three lit candles right in front of her. She pulls out a cigarette <laughs> She fumbles for the lighter and then flick, 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 flick. The lighter doesn't work. And then she's like, oh, wait. Hey, I could just light it off this candle. Candle right here. Yep. And I'm thinking, was that scripted or is this actress a moron? Or are we supposed to? I don't know. If I had shot that, I, I think I might have edited around that and not even kept it in the film. But apparently nobody noticed or it was part of it. Or maybe they left it in because they needed to hit a particular time time frame yeah um, well it's super fun and there's something that comes up kind of similar in a little bit but i'll point that out too okay but oh one of I the just, other things I, okay i'm sorry just another thing that people made a little more difficult than it needed to be similar to her trying to use a lighter when there's a lit candles right in front of her Oh, okay. I, I don't know exactly what you're referring to, so I'll be interested to hear it when we get there. Okay. All right. One of the other important things from this scene is that she opens a drawer and takes out a tiny little vial of purple liquid, smiles at it, and then puts it back in the drawer. Um, we need to remember that because we'll see it again later. Yeah. Um, and she's really got this interesting outfit on it's like a purple teddy and then a, a nightgown on top of it that's kind of see-through she's very sexy she's mm -hmm. got like this milf thing going on oh yeah um but at the very last second of this scene the door opens and a figure that looks to be male enters with bare hands but otherwise dressed in black long sleeve black shirt and black pants and she smiles at him and he comes in, but that's it. We don't see who he is. We don't see them interacting and there's nothing spoken. So we're going to see a little bit more of him later. Um, after that scene, we get another exterior shot of the castle. And then we have these two guys, I guess they're masons who are coming to do some work on the house. And, um, Andrea comes by with his little wheelbarrow full of plants and uh, they say, Hey, can, you know, can we use your wheelbarrow? And he's like, Oh, you know, you got to help me take the plants out first. And then all of a sudden the dog goes running by and barking. Um, you know, knowing what I know about the dog in the end of the movie, I don't know if that was supposed to be a clue or if it was just, it just happened. But what's weird about it is if all these films are dubbed in, Sound wise, mm -hmm. they did put the sound of the dog barking as he's running away. So um, I don't know if it was on purpose or if they filmed the scene and the dog ran through and they said, well, okay, well, we're going to leave this in, but we got to put a sound in for the dog. I don't know. Yeah, because what could he be excited about or barking over? Well, there's, there's something in the, in the place where... I don't know if this is a tomb. I guess it is. There's a, there's a, some sort of catacombs or tomb that has like little white crosses on the front doors that he sits by. 
Um, yeah, somebody refers to that as a chapel. I just refer to it as a crypt right, in my okay. notes. Because once we get inside there and see what it is, it's it's basically just a crypt. Right. So let's see. Uh, there's not really much else going on in this in this scene except for the fact that um, Andrea says, you know, nobody's home right now. They, or I don't know if they're not home, but they went to get the reading of the will. I don't know if this was done. It is clearly done in a part of the castle because um, what's his name is there? Uh, the uh, the servant, not Andrea, the other guy. What's his name? Edward. 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 He's there. So, I mean, if they had to go into town to get the reading of the will done, I don't know that he would go with them. Yeah, who takes a damn butler to the reading of the will? Right. So I think there's just in in another place in the castle. So, Uh, But what's also interesting is when you look at a close-up of Andrea, he's got cigarette burns underneath the part of his mustache that's right above his lips. And you can tell, like, he's got browning, uh, like, cigar burns or something. Um, Oh, right under his nostrils? Right under his nostrils. On his mustache? Yeah. That's from exhaling the smoke through your nose. Through your nose, okay. Over a long, 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 long time. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. So we go to the reading of the will. Um... The, uh, the notary is reading the will and it's a very simple one. It says, you know, Elizabeth gets everything. She says, I want to make sure that Carol is retained as the governess. And he says, yes, it says exactly that in the will. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> he, it, it sounds so simple. Okay. Well, uh, she gets everything. Oh yeah. But I want to make sure Carol stay. Oh yeah. It's in there too. Well, what the fuck else is in there? Sit down and do your fucking job. Yeah. Go through the rest of it. Maybe there's something else. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> and I think, I, and I want to stop at this point because, um, one of the good things about how bright this film is, is that, the actress who plays Elizabeth is really gorgeous in this film. Her hair is a little bit too much, but um, she just has that, like, I don't know. She's got a very much of an Aryan kind of German look to her, which is why they probably <laughs> cast her, cast her in that, in that SS movie. Hell yeah. But I don't think she looks as good in, the later films as she does in this one. It's almost like she, she hit a wall very quickly. Um, but maybe it's just my personal preference. Um, but anyway, uh, so the, the reading of the will is over and, um, uh, let's see here in my notes. Oh, we get another shot of the pink clouds surrounding the, the castle. Yes, and then we're treated to the introduction of uh, Paul, Paul Renault. Mm-hmm. But we see Elizabeth and uh, Jack walking in just, it's not the forest. It looks like, you know, my backyard if I let shit grow for too long. That's what it looks like to me. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, he here comes here comes Jack saying, hey, don't go that way. There's quicksand over there. And she goes, oh, that's the quicksand my uncle told me about. Um, 
the famous quicksand. I didn't believe it was there or something like that. So thank God yeah. for Jack. He didn't, you know, they didn't end up in the quicksand, but he, um, very quickly makes, uh, makes it known that, you know, he lives in this little villa on the edge of the property here and we're neighbors and I've made a, an offer to buy it. And, um, He's, no, no, I'm sorry. They say to him, uh, we know that you're interested in buying it. And he says, um, how did you know that? And I think Jack says, uh, the governess told us that you, you put in an offer. Right. Um, so, you know, again, just to reinforce the idea that the governess is really pushing this agenda just as much as anybody else is. Uh, whereas Mr. Shinton is still kind of on the fence. He's like, I don't really understand this major push to sell the, to sell the castle. I, I'm not privy to this information. Right. So, and Shinton was supposed to have been the uncle's longtime friend. Right. And he, he hadn't heard anything about wanting to sell the castle. And this guy who says, yeah, I live in the small little house on the edge of your property, and it looks like I hunt for my own food, but I'm trying to buy your castle. <laughs> right. Okay. And then later they refer to him as a rich industrialist, and I'm like, well, you wouldn't know from his small house <laughs> that they talk about or the tiny piece of shit car he drives. Uh, or the fact that he but, walks around with a rifle in the in the woods, you know. Right. Yeah, dressed up like anyway. <laughs> if and if he wants to buy the castle and the woman who just inherited the castle is about to walk into quicksand, maybe shut the fuck up. Right. Yeah, I mean it'll be much easier to buy it if she's dead. Yeah. Well, actually I'm sure guess, this is obviously not important, but if she were to die then who gets the castle? It's not the governess because it doesn't say that specifically in the will. So, uh, but there's never, there's never really any, I, I don't know. In, in watching this movie, I never really felt like there was a threat to Elizabeth's life, even though there's some weird shit going on that we'll get to later. Yeah. It doesn't really feel like anybody's wants to kill her. It's just yeah. It's they, all kind of just gaslighty stuff. They're right, trying to exactly. Scare exactly. her away. Well, so they walk on a little bit, and they run into Claudine, and she's in her pro-Ukraine outfit. Um, <laughs> and she's that's her there, painting uniform. That's her painting uniform. She's out there sketching, and I could have sworn that at one point they show what she's working on. It might have been in a different scene, and even though she says she doesn't like to paint stills. That's exactly what she's working on. You know, there's no, there's no sunset, but anyway, um, they come down and they ask which way to the castle, which doesn't make any sense. If fucking Elizabeth, you know, has been there before, how could you get lost on the grounds of the castle? I don't know. Um, and how is it that Claudine knows where it is? I mean, how far did they walk? You know, um, I don't know. anyway, that, she brings up, uh, Hey, are you the new owner? And <laughs> Elizabeth's like, well, yeah, but how the fuck did you know that? And she's like, well, there's a lot of talk in the village about you. And, um, 
and she says, oh, well, you know, I've been in London for all this time and I don't have any friends, so please come and visit me soon. And she says, okay, I will. Uh, and they, they leave and she goes back to her painting, but she's got this look on her face like something else is going on and you're not really sure what it is. Uh, then we see a quick scene here where we see the dog, the dog sitting in front of the doors with the crosses on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a sunset, there's some thunder. Then we're back inside the castle. And in this case, we see Elizabeth sitting with Dr. Shinton. Doctor, not doctor, Mr. Shinton. Um, he says, I've got to go back to London. This, this, one, this conversation is so ridiculous. Um, and I don't know if it was lost <laughs> in the translation because all I know is what I read in the subtitles. But basically, we also see that Edward is pouring drinks, which is important to keep track of. Um, So Shinton says he's still not convinced that her uncle wanted to sell. And he mentions that there are documents that will help clear things up. He also says he doesn't know what's in the documents, (laughs) but he thinks that Carol knows what's in the documents. So I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. why don't they just fucking ask her what's in the documents? But anyway, um, they want to, I guess they want to play around her. They don't want her to to be involved in this investigation. And then Liz says, well, you know more than I do, which doesn't make any sense because he just said he doesn't know anything. Uh, (laughs) So I don't know. Um, Like, we don't know what, you know, and maybe it's just to, to, to put Mr. Shinton in a position of also being a suspect or, not really understanding or knowing what he's up to. Um, Well, I think he's kind of sealing his fate because basically he's saying there's information that I have or that (laughs) I know about and I can help you get to it. And uh, I don't know what it is yet. Yeah. Let's talk about it at a better time. Good night. And as we know, anybody that does that is, you know, the clock starts ticking. They're about to get whacked. And, of course, it happens. And it happens again later, too. Right, yeah. And this scene was the one that I kind of compared to uh, Carol lighting her cigarette. Okay. Because they have those drinks poured there. She gets up and leaves. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The bottle is in the middle of the table. His glass is almost empty, but not quite. Her glass is basically half full. Right. Instead of... A, finishing what was in his glass, or just reaching over and grabbing her glass, this poor old man picks up this heavy crystal decanter <laughs> and pours himself... like, dude, it's alcohol. You're not going to get cooties. Finish well, not your only, shot. Not only that, but he pours it twice. Like, he wasn't happy with the amount that he poured from the first time, and so he, he tops right. it off. Yeah. And again, it's just probably bad direction, like... Like that one actress had said, you know, I think they probably put these actors in, in situations where they made them improvise and they didn't tell them exactly what to do. Like, right. yeah. yeah, go over there and light your cigarette. Okay. <laughs> um, but don't use the, you know, use the, can- use whatever you want to light your cigarette. So, oh, and maybe they purposely gave her a lighter that didn't work. Like, <laughs> let's see if, she, let's, let's see, see if she figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> Choose your own adventure. Oh my um, God, that's cool. Yeah. So, and, you know, and now I want to bring up 
one of the things that I keep thinking about with the character of Elizabeth, she is, she is really the great procrastinator. Like every single time a situation comes up where they're asking her to make a decision or just give her opinion on what she thinks or have a longer discussion about something. She says, eh, not right now. And you know, <laughs> um, part of it is, you know, just to reinforce the idea that, you know, She's in mourning. She's trying to get used to the idea that she owns the castle. Let's not talk about this right now. But as it goes on and on and on, she makes less and less decisions um, because things get weirder and weirder. So uh, the next scene is the first murder sequence. We see a very out-of-focus Jeanette uh, wheeling around the room in her wheelchair. And then she cracks the door open and we see a figure in black. Now, we could probably assume this is the same figure in black we saw before, but we don't really know. And this time he's wearing black gloves and carrying a flashlight. So she's peering out the door. She sees him. And then we are in the room where Mr. Shinton is uh, sleeping. Now, it is so fucking bright in this room. I don't know how he could be sleeping. <laughs> but again, it's probably... You know, due to the, okay. Now all of a sudden, once the, once the, the man in black comes in the door, it gets darker so that we can see the flashlight moving over things. And here's the other question. If there are flashlights available, why are we walking around with lit candelabras everywhere? I don't understand that (laughs) one either, but whatever, I guess for the, uh, ambiance. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's this very much uh, reminiscent of deep red scene where the black glove goes over and peruses information on the desk and looks at the papers. And it's all out of focus, by the way. Um, Yeah. And all of a sudden, Shinton wakes up because he hears the noises. He turns the light on. He says, what do you want? And then we see the... uh, the glove come from the left side of the frame and grab Shinton around the the throat to strangle him. And then very quickly we cut to the outside and then we cut back to Jeanette watching him being carried away. Which is a very important point that never comes up later. (laughs) But The fact that it doesn't come up later. The, the important yeah. point that Jeanette saw this happen or the point that he was being m- removed? No, from the, the fact that Jeanette saw it. Yeah. Okay, well, I, at the very end of the film or close to the end of the film, Elizabeth asks Jeanette to write everything down. And so, give it to me tomorrow. <laughs> right. That's what I was going to bring up. <laughs> but... Jeanette, I'm I'm assuming that her radiation sickness hasn't rattled her brain that much. She's writing. She writes a couple notes. Well, okay, that's it's down the road. But yeah, yeah, yeah. She had the opportunity. I mean, how long does it take to write? They fucking killed Shenton yeah, and Shinton carried him out. Yeah, yeah. Get <laughs> out. I mean, but no. <laughs> no, she holds on to that for a while. Well, there's yeah. another. There's another thing about this film that is makes it a little bit confusing as to how much time has passed. Is it day? Is it night? And part of that problem is that the outfits seem to get recycled throughout the film. 
Like every time we go back to the cafe, it's the mm-hmm. same dancers with the same outfits on. And oh, yeah. it's three different, you know, it's three different days. And sometimes Elizabeth is wearing outfits that she wore in previous days. So, you know, it's clear that, you know, they, they filmed all the scenes in the cafe at once and then they edited them in um, later on to, to make it look like time has passed. But if you're paying attention, you'll see that they're wearing the same outfits. So in all the scenes of Claudine painting, she's wearing the Ukrainian colors, like you said. Yep. And there are times when, Jack is wearing a gray suit and then he's wearing a black suit. And then later the same day, or I guess in theory, plot wise, later the same day, he's back in the other suit. And it's like, is this guy changing his suit like every four hours or something? Right. Who the hell? And if you're on vacation in a castle, why are you walking around wearing a damn suit to tour the dungeon and shit like that? (laughs) Well, I think I might I be think, biased. I don't even own a suit. You yeah. Know, if you put a gun to my head right now and said, you got to go see the judge wear a suit, fuck <laughs> it, pull the trigger. I'm not, I'm get, I don't have one. I'm not getting it. So. <laughs> and it really just for a traffic violation, you'd rather be shot, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it may be, you know, it, it's definitely something I noticed too. I think they're trying to reinforce this conservative puritanical kind of vibe that we get from Mm -hmm. Elizabeth and Jack. I mean, they don't sleep together. They're not married yet. Um, Right. It may be that that goes back to the more period, correct Victorian horror or Gothic horror. Right. Right. Because if a lot of those stories took place like a hundred years earlier, that's the way the characters would be interacting. Right. But they're kind of keeping those aspects of relationship dynamics, but they're also rubbing our nose in the music and styles and dancing or not dancing. Yeah. Of the late sixties. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But I mean, I think you're right. I think to, to kind of emphasize the mood of it being Gothic, they, they, Mm -hmm. they throw that little stuff, those little kinds of things in. Yeah. That's a good point. So after we see Shitten being carried off, um, there's a quick cut um, where we see the dog again. And he's still <laughs> sitting in front of these two doors. Uh, he gets up and runs away. The dog's name is Black, by the way, I think. Right? Yeah. yeah. I, That's a really original time, name. Yeah. 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 And he's the hero of the film. Yeah. To yeah, the absolutely. point that Led Zeppelin even wrote a song about him. So <laughs> thought that was cool. Well, big leg woman ain't got no soul. That's for sure. <laughs> there aren't any big leg yeah. women in this movie, though. Um, our next scene is the first of many uh, bedroom scenes with Elizabeth. And um, her legs are on display throughout this movie, and I couldn't be happier. So, uh we do see another one of these mirrors that isn't a mirror sitting at the, uh, <laughs> I'm looking at it now. There's, I, I paused it right when the, uh, you know, it's thundering and all of a sudden this branch breaks through the window and, and scares her to death. And <laughs> you can, if you pause it, you can see that whatever it is that's supposed to be framed with this, 
you know, sitting on the, on, you know, on the desk or whatever, it just looks like it's a piece of paper. Um, it's not a photo. It's not a mirror. It's not anything, you know? Yeah. I mean, even a piece of aluminum foil would have been better than whatever the hell this is. And they keep showing it over and over again. Yeah. It's like a recurring shot throughout the entire film. And to the point where I was wondering, is there something special or plot twisty about this, whatever the hell that is? Yeah. And it doesn't really need to be there. No. I think it's there for decorative purposes, but I also think that, um, they never intended the film to be this bright and this, this hasn't this much resolution. Cause I don't think yeah. you would have noticed it originally when it was out in the theaters. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Elizabeth is freaked out. She runs out into the hallway. Um, Jack comes and says, don't worry about it. There's a tree that broke through your window. <laughs> and then I like that. Go oh, good. Sorry. I like that. Jack hears her screaming. Okay. Because a, a branch shoved itself through her window. Right. He comes into the hallway. He's putting his jacket on. Like, dude, it's an emergency. And his first thought is, oh, wait, I'm wearing a suit. I must get my jacket. It needs to look good. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he comes out of there putting his jacket. I'm like, what the hell, dude? And then she says, my window opened suddenly. <laughs> and that wasn't a translation thing because she says the same thing in Italian. Okay. Your window did not open suddenly. Right. Somebody shoved a Christmas tree through your fucking window <laughs> and, oh, it opened. Uh, um, she's so out of it that she didn't even know that that happened. And maybe if it was darker in the room, um, we wouldn't have yeah. noticed the tree either, but whatever. Uh so now they're out in the hall and there's an interesting scene where uh, Carol comes out and starts asking a couple of questions about why is Jack uh, still awake? And he said that he, that he was correcting some articles and Carol is in her absolute best MILF librarian glasses um, outfit, at least the... Hell yeah. The top part. And he says, well, yeah, well, you know, journalism is a job that never permits holidays. So now we know that Jack is a journalist. Um, yeah. never really and we get a dramatic before. zoom. And the like dramatic zoom to his eyeballs, some, yeah. Yeah, like he just laid some heavy shit on her. <laughs> <laughs> so then in the next scene, we see somebody carrying Mr. Shinton through the woods. It Again, very bright. I don't know if it's day or if it's night. Um, and then we see Claudine in her awesome jacket, the jacket that I think Matt would go ape shit over. Uh, and she's also wearing boots. So that probably puts the outfit over the top for Matt. I would assume she's walking around also with a flashlight walking around in what I'm referring to as the catacombs or the crypt or whatever. Uh, and she's opening various doors. She's walking down steps um, oh, I have in my notes from the previous scene <laughs> that the guy carrying Shinton, uh, mm -hmm. or, or Shinton's body is being carried through the grounds and his feet are like super dirty. I don't know why I put that in my notes, but whatever. 
Um, Shinton's feet are dirty. Shinton, Shinton's feet, yeah, because he's got this. He's being carried like fireman style, and his feet. Are yeah, sticking, yeah. The bottoms of his feet are sticking out. <laughs> I don't know why I care. Well, that means he was standing there waiting for them to start filming, and he got right. his feet dirty. Very sloppy, Mister Casapinta. <laughs> exactly. No more movies for you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And he obliged. Yeah. So eventually Claudine um, makes her way into this room where she crawls through a hole in the wall, clearly knowing that it was there and puts down this little red, uh, looks like a, a police siren that you would see on top of, you know, one of the police procedurals from the 70s. You know how like right. they put you know how they used to put the the light on top of the car. I guess it was magnetic or something. Yeah, yeah. That's what it looks like. But it beeps and it flashes. So she mm-hmm. sees that it beeps and flashes a few times. She puts it back in her pocket. She climbs back out of the of the hole in the wall, and that is the end of the scene. And right after that, <laughs> we see her again in her uh, painting outfit. And yeah, is, smash cut. Now it's daytime and she's painting, wearing the same painting clothes. And she's before. painting trees. And she said she doesn't like to paint trees. So, Well, but, she's over the sunsets now. Yeah, the sunsets are too difficult. You can't really paint them. They go too fast. Uh, yeah. So this, this scene is crazy. So she gets on this thing that looks like a transistor radio, but it's actually like a CB or a... Uh, uh, some sort of uh, communication device. And Mm -hmm. she says something like, okay, it's over. Is that what she says? Okay. Over like, you know, CB talk or walkie talkie. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. But this, she doesn't reveal anything else though. No. in In that part. Where's my pen? Hang on. So she sees, she hears that uh, that Paul Renault is uh, Renault Renault is Renault. coming over. Um, he's got his little shotgun, and um, they're talking about her paintings. And she says, "What have you been up to lately?" And he says, "I like this painting." And she says, "You're good at dodging questions." And then he said, "Well, I haven't given your question enough weight because I would be." Uh, I'm, I'm really surprised that a beautiful woman would be interested in anything that I'm doing. Um, and then they talk about the fact that um, he wants to buy the castle. She's prodding for information as we eventually find out. But um, he says, I haven't been successful yet with having a discussion about selling it, um, but I'm hopeful that that will happen soon. And then they say goodbye to each other. So, um, and he's wearing these wee- weird green boots. And he talks about how much he likes her paintings, but apparently he can't buy one because he's saving up for a castle. <laughs> and if she's thinking this guy's buying a castle and he's you know he's hitting on me, you know, at least, I mean, I've known enough starving artists. I mean, buy a damn painting. Yeah. Maybe you'll get her digits or something. Yeah, say that. Well, after the scene, we have a tour of the crypt catacombs. Um, Carol, the governess, is wearing, still wearing her conservative MILF outfit, um, walking <laughs> through the castle with um, 
the candelabra. They stop at the hole that Claudine was just seen coming in and out of. And she says, what's this mysterious hole? And Carol says, it's nothing important. It's just an old tunnel. And then they make a joke about, oh, maybe this is where the ghost lives. And the two men are laughing. Because, of course, no one believes in ghosts if, you're, if you have a penis, you know. <laughs> um, and I really like uh, Elizabeth's dress here. It's very Brady Bunch. Oh, it's super 60s. Yeah. yeah. So they are led into what appears to be a torture chamber museum um, that has been maintained all of these years for some reason. Uh, apparently there is some sort of history now that we're going to introduce into the storyline with, um, these people who were tortured, um, in various ways. And Elizabeth says, so did these people really exist? And Carol says, no, they're really just recreations except for this one person, um, named Robin, who lived 500 years ago. Um, by the way, let's stop talking about this until we get back to the dining room and then we could talk about it some more. Uh, they completely just jump away and cut away from this scene in the catacombs and go back to the dining room where they're sitting around the table and Carol continues to tell the story about uh, this this Robin character who lived 500 years ago, who was tortured because he was in love with somebody who just happened to be named Elizabeth. And um, this is going to be the inspiration for part of the scam that happens later. I don't know if any of this really was true in as much as, you know, the, the lore of the film itself, or if they just made it up, so that they would have a reason to be able to, to start their scam. But um, in, any, in any rate, um, they continue to talk about a ghost in a way that kind of, it's almost as if some of the characters are treating the story as if it really happens. And the, the idea that this guy who lived 500 years ago is now a ghost and he walks around the grounds yelling, Elizabeth, Elizabeth. And the women seem to be talking about it in a way that they're, you know, they're attempt, they're, they're trying their best to consider that this might be a real thing instead of it being like, okay, well, obviously ghost stories are just ghost stories and they're not true. That's what the men uh, think, but they're really, you know, mm -hmm. entertaining this idea that it's for real, uh, which seems kind of silly, but whatever. Um, but the important part of the scene, besides the idea that they plant the, besides the fact that they planted the idea about the ghost and the calling of Elizabeth is that Edward comes in and asks her, would you like your cognac? And she says, no, please wait until I go to bed. I would like it very hot and mixed with milk because I'm chilly. And of course, um, our fearless fiance says, I think you probably caught a cold in the dungeon. 
um, which we know now from medical uh, <laughs> science that that doesn't really happen. You can't catch a cold in the cold because it's cold, you know. Um, but at any rate, uh, <laughs> so as the story goes, the poor man's ghost calling out the name of the woman he loved. Um, why didn't uncle, why didn't my uncle tell me about this strange legend? Ugh, Good question. Jesus yeah. Christ. You know, maybe your uncle had another life and he didn't, he didn't live, you know, <laughs> maybe he had other stuff he didn't tell you about. Well, Carol's like, well, obviously he didn't tell you because the last time you spoke to him, you were a little girl and he didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to scare you. And, and he, he goes, mm-hmm. and then she says, I want to make sure I told you this because you might hear him calling in the middle of the night. And I didn't want you to be surprised that there's a ghost. <laughs> okay. So even if the uncle knew this or believed it or thought it and did not tell his little niece Elizabeth because he didn't want to scare her, what Carol just says, I'm telling you now because you might have... You might hear the ghost in the middle of the night. The ghost wouldn't give a shit about the little girl, Elizabeth. She still would have heard it when she was a kid. Whether her uncle told her, she heard the ghost. True. So. But also the fact that they are seriously talking about the fact that I just want to warn you, there's might be a ghost later that you're going to hear. Like, right. You know, they're being very. It's it's ridiculous, you know. Yeah. Well, I like we were saying before, I think if this was a more period correct gothic horror thing, it wouldn't seem so ridiculous because like maybe just from uh, a bias for our own time period, when right. we think of people in the like 1800s believing stuff like that it's a little easier to think well of course they believed in ghosts they were basically cavemen (laughs) right right exactly yep but meanwhile you know the way that they approach this is that um it seems like elizabeth jack and the two friends are like the modern bourgeois society practical mm -hmm. people and um they're second guessing all of this kind of weird legendary ghost stuff, which kind of makes it seem a little bit ridiculous. Like either, you know, let's, let's be practical about this or let's be superstitious about it, but let's not, I mean, having both types of characters in the same, uh, in the same movie kind of makes it weird. Like it just doesn't seem Mm -hmm. to gel. So, um, right after that scene, we get this really cool scene, um, of the two black gloves and the eyedropper with the purple liquid. And I think, I don't know if it's this one or if it's the next time we see it, but every time the drop comes out, they do this weird little thing on the, the synthesizer. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like for, for each drop. For each drop. Yes. Um, now we only see yeah. that for a few seconds and then we go back to a different part of the castle where, Uh, Elizabeth and Jack are talking and having a drink. Yeah. This is the, uh, the fireside chat where they never light the fire. And we come back to this setting several times throughout the film, which makes me think that this was totally on a set and there's no way they could have put a fire 
inside that fireplace. Well, not only that, but if you notice the outfit that Elizabeth is wearing in this scene, she's wearing, um, when she goes to bed that one time, she starts stripping off her, uh, her clothes. But then Mm -hmm. much later in the movie, there's a scene with her and Claudine and Carol sitting around having a drink and she's wearing this same outfit again. So, um, again, it just, it just says to me, Hey, they shot everything in one big, you know, take and then edited it together later. So we have this one room for one day and everybody bring one change of clothes. and we're gonna sh- <laughs> Exactly. Now okay. I'm making the assumption that this little vial of purple liquid is the same one that we saw Carol pull out of the drawer, smile at and put back. Um, but it looks a little different than it did before. But anyway, it, it, I don't think we're supposed to look at it too closely. Well, um, later we see dosy drops being put in somebody's drink and they're not purple at all. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's like so I'm wondering, are there two? Yeah. Are there two different types of, Acid going around. Yeah, I think it's this. I think it's the problem with the lighting again. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the so lighting made it purple. The lighting, like, yeah, exactly. Um, no, they probably had two different ones, and one of them was purple, and one wasn't. But yeah, you know, it was. It's really supposed to be the same vial of poison or, or hallucinogenic drug. So okay. I guess they sit and talk a little bit about. Um, I think Carol's up to something basically. And um, I don't know why she told me the strange story. What is what's up with her? It's just an impression. I don't know. I get a weird feeling. And Jack's like, nah, it's just a story about it. The old story about the castle. And it's like, maybe she's trying to um, convince me to sell because I shouldn't stay here. And he says, uh, you know, what would make you think that? <laughs> um, but he says, no, you know, I think you're being crazy. You're a crazy woman. Um, and I don't think you should make a decision about selling the house or the castle based on some ghost story. So they decide to go for a walk in the daytime, but it's almost bedtime, I guess. I don't know. Uh, day for night, bad editing, what have you. Uh, we also see when they go for this walk, uh, a shot of uh, Andre or Andrea, who's uh, shoveling something. We see the dog again. And then we have another scene with Jack and Elizabeth um, sitting on a bench after they take their walk. And um, let's see. Liz, basic, Elizabeth basically says that she feels like she's in a strange place. Things are weird. Um you know, and Jack is like, look, your nerves are all over the place. Um, don't pay attention to the ghost story. It's just a fairy tale. And I'm here to make you feel safe. And she says, yes, you're right. And then they kissy kissy. Um, <laughs> the next scene, which is really funny, is someone is looking in, we think, on Carol who's in a room with another one of these non-mirror mirrors up against the window. She's got her glasses off, so we know she's in evil Carol mode. And 
She's talking to somebody and she refers to him as um, uh, Stefan. Is that right? Yeah. Stefan. Do I have this in my notes that her name is Stefan? His name is Stefan. Yeah, that's why she. No, the guy is Stefan. Right. Which in Italian would be Stefano, but we're trying to be French. So. So they're having this conversation. And he is, is at this point where he's kind of talking like this in this whisper, like being really angry, but also whispering. Is that. Yeah, like, like Batman. So we don't know who's true. We don't know who it is. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So she's saying, look, I don't think this is going to work. And he says, no, the substance that we're using creates mental confusion, something between nightmares and reality. We need her to be so confused uh, that she doesn't know whether she's in a, in a nightmare or awake. Um, don't question me again. And she says, I won't. My plan can't fail. And then they start a little bit of their lovemaking sort of thing. Um, now, I don't know. Did you get the impression that somebody was looking in on them from outside? Or was this just supposed to be the audience looking in? I guess it was just supposed to be us because I think at this point, nobody really suspects them and it never comes up again. So, but I'm thinking it might be Claudine who's looking through the window. Oh, the only reason I say that is because the scene starts with, you know, looking through the window on the left side, the camera pans to the right we see Carol talking. Then she moves across to the left and the camera pans back to the left again, kind of to mm-hmm. indicate that someone's watching. I don't know. Probably a minor detail, but. Well, it would have helped if they showed us at least a shadow outline of somebody against the outside wall. Right. So that we knew it was somebody, not just. Yeah. True enough. Well, I well, because like in Naked You Die, when somebody's peeking in a window, they let you know somebody's peeking in a window. Yeah, you see the back of their and head. it's not... Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, after a while, you see that whole guy in the tree. But, I mean, even other films, when somebody's peeking in the window, they do something. Like, you'll see the bush in front of the window move a little bit to indicate that somebody is physically in that space. Right. In here, they don't. No. But it would make... If I had to pick somebody in the the story to be spying on them, I would guess Claudine. Right. If you say so. Well, and at this point, we do know that Claudine is more than than just a painter who is pro-Ukraine. We know that she um, (laughs) is kind of like sneaking around or snooping around. So it would... She has a walkie-talkie. Right. That's suspicious and a flashlight. Yeah. Yeah, and she creeps around dungeons and stuff with her little handy-dandy bat Geiger counter. <laughs> <laughs> the red light special. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so the next scene is the first of, I guess, three bedroom sleeping scenes with Elizabeth. Um, mm-hmm. And again... Uh, if you're looking at, if you're watching this 
if you're going through the, the, the film while we're talking about it, uh, I think we're at the 30, almost the 39 minute mark. And you can see clearly that for whatever reason, they will not focus on Elizabeth's face. They have the foreground in focus, which is like the covers where she's sleeping, you know, over the bottom half of her body. Um, those are in focus, but her face and her her arms and hands are not in focus. I don't, again, some a stupid kind of realization that you know maybe the director didn't know what he was doing or what have you. Um, before that, you know, she tries to occupy herself. She tries to read a little bit or something, and she finally decides, okay, it's time for me to go to sleep. And she lays on her side and she reaches over and she turns the light out, and it gets a little bit darker in the room. <laughs> it hardly makes a difference at all. But then after we see this part where she's out of focus and we cut back to, it cuts to the window, which I think is the window that the tree came through. Yeah. And then we cut back to her. It's completely bright again. Like the light was never mm -hmm. turned off in the first place and she's grabbing her throat and she's scared. And then we hear Elizabeth coming through the window. Um, now the important thing for me to bring up here is no. Okay. So this isn't yet where the censoring happens. I don't think. Oh no. Yeah, it does. Wait, let, hang on. Oh, you mean where they insert the, well, when they put the nude scenes in? Yes. Oh, you know what? Okay. I know what happened. So I originally, this is, this is more information that you'll ever need to know, but I did my notes in Microsoft Word. Um, <laughs> this is funny. I'll have to cut all this out. Uh, I, I made my notes in Microsoft Word because at the time I was supposed to be working. And when I'm working, <laughs> I'm connected to the Office VPN. And the Office VPN mm -hmm. has blacklisted all of Google products because there's some sort of security concern with Google products. Um, so I couldn't go into Google Docs to make my notes. So I did it in Word. And then when I moved my notes into Google Docs, I did a copy and paste. And all of this is to say that I went and did yellow highlights for the spots where it was cut out of the YouTube version. Um, but now I don't, oh, okay. I don't see my yellow highlights because when I copied from Word to Google Docs, it didn't keep the highlights. So more information than anyone needs to know, and I'll probably cut that out. But anyway, um, the, in, in, the, in the YouTube version... If you're watching that one, she's in the bed. There's some sort of a light that's coming from where the door would be. She gets a scary look on her face. She's uh, in, yeah, the door looks like it swings open. Her eyes get wider. And then we cut to a shot of what looks like Jack approaching with this white shirt on. But like there's Vaseline all over the lens. You can't really see you know, um, who it is. But then in the YouTube version, the very next scene is her sleeping on her stomach. But 
in the uncut version, in between those two uh, cuts that I just talked about, um, let's see, I'm looking at my notes here. Hold on one second. We cut to Elizabeth laying on her back on a different bed. She's completely naked, except she's using her arms to cover her breasts. And there's like a candelabra on the side table. And Jack approaches. Um, he's wearing this Seinfeld puffy shirt. And uh, <laughs> he lays down next to Liz and they start to kiss. Uh, but then he gets up and leaves. And then they cut back to... Um, Elizabeth in her bed with her purple nightgown on laying on her stomach. And at the very last second, the camera pans, it zooms out, it pans to the right. And we see somebody with blonde hair and all in black leaving the room. Right. And I don't know what the hell that's supposed to be. Like that's the ghost of the guy who was killed down in the dungeon. Okay, but remember the one that was in love with the woman named Elizabeth, right? But is that? I mean, why is he in the room? Like, and what does that have to? What does that have to do with her sex dream or sex hallucination? Well, I think that was drug induced by that purple rain acid that got slipped into her nightcap, right? And but why is in in the with regard to the scam and not, right. not it's actually a ghost. Why, why was that person in the room? Well, maybe to see if it took effect or to see what her reaction to it would be or to cop a sleep creep feel. Okay. She's otherwise incapacitated. I don't know. It's a weird but, one, right? Cause like the door, when she, when she wakes up because the door opens you're not really mm -hmm. sure if that's the beginning of her hallucination or dream sequence or if that happened and the person that we see leaving at the end of the scene is the person who opened the door. Well, the puffy shirt that we saw Jack wearing is part of the ghost costume that we discover later. Mm -hmm. But again, that may so have just I been think, Elizabeth hallucinating. Yeah, maybe. Maybe ghost guy just actually fucked her. While she was tripping. <laughs> and because as... Okay, the door opens. We know that. Because that's still in the reality part, right? It's not in the the fantasy bedroom where she's laying there naked. Right. I guess. So the door opens. She sees Jack walk in wearing that puffy shirt. Right. Probably because... She's like an LSD trip. Yeah, she kind of shows her what she thinks she wants to see. Right. Or hallucinates it for lay people. And all that that happened probably actually could have, maybe did happen. And she thought it was, and, uh, and she thought it was Jack. And she's hallucinating that they're in a different kind of room on a different kind of bed. And she's dressed differently. Yeah, she's, she's experiencing it all differently. And but it really the, happened. Maybe, I guess. Could be. But the person who's actually 
in the room isn't Jack, or at least, I mean, we eventually realize it's not Jack. No, I don't, um, I don't think so, yeah. But who is it? Is it the person that gets revealed at the end? Or is it Carol? Or is it, is I would it, is guess it it's Stefan? The is it Carol? Dude, that, that's an interesting twist. Well, I mean, it can't really be Carol because you see the hair on the way out. <laughs> and it's definitely not Carol. That well, it, it's a, it could be a blonde wig. Yeah. I would guess that it's the person that is revealed at the very end. Right. If I had to guess. Okay. Uh, but wow, I hadn't even thought of that. I thought the whole thing was just a trip. But then, yeah, me too. Jeez, or a dream. Yeah. Well, I mean, and then so when, dude, you, when we think... get to the scene where she's brought down to the the torture chamber again, uh-huh. um, that is clearly either a hallucination or a dream because some of the stuff that happens while they're down there could never have happened in real right. life. Well, we'll get to that eventually, right. but um, before the end of this scene. The two people who you forgot all about, pretty much, who are the, the friends of Liz and Jack. Uh, Gerard and Blanche. Blanche. Blanche wakes up and hears a noise, and um, she, he says something about, oh, you're just scared because of that ghost story, and, and I don't know why that scene is even in there. Just to remind you that there's still other people in the castle, I guess. Right. The next scene we have um, Andrea, who's doing some indoor pruning of some plants. And um, they talk about Jeanette and how Elizabeth wants to go pay her a visit and talk to her. But please don't say anything to anybody about it. Um, But that's it. We don't we don't immediately go to a, you know, a visit with Jeanette, because now we go outside where. um, where Jack is in the blue suit reading Le Figaro, right? And uh, yeah, that's the French newspaper I was and, talking about. Right. Okay. With Elizabeth, uh, with her her gams on display again, which again, no complaints here. They talk about why did Shinton leave without saying goodbye? Of course, Mister Practical always has an answer for everything. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, he doesn't say anything. I guess he just says he was in a hurry to leave. And then all of a sudden, um, a telegram is uh, brought over to Liz. Uh, A courier drops it off. And just so happens that the telegram (laughs) says exactly the answer to the question she asked, which is, I apologize for leaving in a hurry. And I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. And so Jack was like, Jack is like, look, sign Mr. Shinton. Right. Because having a telegram delivered the next day is much easier than just writing a note and leaving it before you leave. <laughs> well, he was in such a hurry. He couldn't even leave the note. And once he got to such wherever, a hurry. right. Once he got to London, <laughs> you know, he, he realized, you know what? I should have just said goodbye. But I think, um, doesn't, doesn't Jack make mention of, you know, he didn't suffer a terrible fate, which is actually kind of ironic because he did. Right. Yeah. He died like a weenie, but 
<laughs> oh, and then got his dirty feet ass dragged into the swamp yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where they put Shitten. Oh, do they talk about where Shitten is later? I think they they find him later. Okay, towards the very end. Um. So we're back at the cafe. Jack and Elizabeth decide to go to the cafe, and it just so happens that everyone is wearing the same clothes as they were before. And uh, they sit at the table, and we see the guy, um, Cordova, who's sitting at the table again, um, right. watching them. And um, they, talk ab- they talk more about Shinton, and they talk about the fact that um, uh, there was some information that he said he was going to get for me. Um, and... <laughs> Jack is like, well, he couldn't have sent it in a telegram. Like he, you know, it, it doesn't, none of it makes any sense. Like he went to all the trouble to send a telegram, which I would assume 1969 is kind of a big deal. Um, especially in that part of the area where it seems like there's not a lot of modernization. And right. he, he went to all the trouble to send a telegram. The real information that Elizabeth is looking for <laughs> is the information about why, uh, what is this, uh, Sir Ballgag um, wanted to sell or didn't want to sell, but instead he just sends a telegram that says, um, I'm sorry, I didn't say goodbye. And then Jack was like, well, the only reason why he didn't give you any more information was because it was really hard to put it in a telegram for some reason. Well, you could put it in a fucking envelope. Post offices existed. Hell, he probably went to a post office to send the telegram. Right. But- exactly. So anyway, they're just trying to explain away the weirdness here. And uh, yeah. Cordova is, is spying on them. Um, and the owner comes over with some appetizers and a bottle of white wine. And did you notice at one point he poured it on the table and not the glass? Oh, no. Let's see. It's at... That would be awesome. It's at 44... Look at it from 44.17. He opens the bottle. He starts pouring it and he says, you know, this wine won't make you drunk. It'll just make you feel good or something. And he pours, yeah. <laughs> he pours it into the glass. Totally different than being drunk. Right. He pours it into the glass. And then all of a sudden he moves it a little bit <laughs> to, to his left and misses the glass. <laughs> right. Okay. So he puts... <laughs> Okay, glass, glass, napkin, napkin. Okay, grabs a bottle, turns the glasses upright, takes the cork off. (laughs) I just watched it again. It's really funny. Did he just pour it on the table? Or was the the second glass under the... No, because I think... um, I think Jack's glass is to the left of, of what, of our vantage point. So he pours. Oh, I don't know. It, it just looked like he poured it right on the, cause both glasses are the same height, aren't they? Or maybe they're not. I would guess. I don't know. I just thought it was funny. It looked like he poured it all over the table. <laughs> Some, oh, that'd be awesome. The stuff we talk about on this fucking podcast. It's so funny. Um, yeah. So uh, Cordova gets up, lights a cigarette, and leaves. Um, and they continue uh, their 
their their meal um and then we cut away to carol going down into the dungeon now this time she does have her glasses on so maybe my theory isn't necessarily completely right um but she's not carrying a flashlight even though you know clearly those are available i don't know why but she's carrying the candle right she's carrying the candle which is much better than a which is a lot like a flashlight especially when you can tell that somebody off camera shining a flashlight (laughs) absolutely she walks past the hole in the wall now here's a question for you does carol know what's actually in that room with the hole in the wall or does she not know I mean, we know that there's something in there, and we know that Claudine knows that there's something in there, but... Yeah. Uh, well, why else is everybody so hell-bent on buying the castle? Isn't that part of the whole motivation to, to buy it? Right. Or to get Elizabeth to sell it? Right. But, but why? It just seems like Carol may not know as much as she thinks, as we think she does. I don't know. Yeah, because later we see her rifling through some documents in what looks like an office or a study. Yeah, so maybe she doesn't know about, you know, the the secret of that room. Yeah, maybe she's just uh, love-struck with Stefan. Right. She knows that Stefan wants it. But I I like the way she takes her glasses off. Yes. Before she walks past that hole. I I was just going to say that. Yep. Yeah, I was kind of hoping for a Wonder Woman moment where she would spin around real quick (laughs) and there'd be a flash and she'd be wearing something a little more interesting. No, it wasn't. Didn't happen that way, unfortunately. Well, she knows she's about to see stuff on, so she gets all sexy. And she comes into the room. She doesn't have the glasses on. She blows out the candle because it's so Mm -hmm. damn bright in this room, but where are the lights coming from other than, you know, the, the <laughs> film equipment? Oh, there's, oh, okay. I see on the table, there's a lamp. I she, like there's a hard hat on the hook right next, next, to, next to the, the axe. Door. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, she does make mention earlier in the film that there's, the electrical system is very old. So they do have electricity in this, in this house. Um, and, you know, you know, well, that. I wonder if the electricity is screwed up in the house because they rerouted some of down here to the secret science layer, <laughs> the underground layer of Dr. Evil. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love these science labs that people put in movies that obviously never took one semester of a science class. <laughs> you mean like the blackboard with the uh, chemical equation the, yeah. on it? Yeah, with the uh, with the chemistry homework on it, and then the vials with uh, different flavors of uh, Kool Aid and yeah. <laughs> flavor ice. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> I expected that. Uh, what's the name of that character for the Kool Aid commercials? That big picture that comes busting through the walls and shit. Oh, the Kool-Aid guy. The oh yeah guy? Yeah. yeah. Oh, is that what they call him? Oh, the I don't Kool-Aid know. I, he, may, he may have a name. May, okay. Well, yeah. Yeah, I half expected him to come busting through that green wall behind him. Oh, yeah. So um, you got like the brightest red liquid, the brightest green liquid, well, blue, and 
this is all about uranium, right? Okay, spoiler. Spoiler, yes. But, okay. Uranium and, um, well, I'm going to talk about the, the, the whole motive in a little bit later when we get to the end, but we then are treated to another scene of um, music accompaniment eyedropper drops just for a split second. Mm -hmm. And this time it's clear. You're right. Not purple. Right. Um, what do they talk about? I forget already before, before the eyedropper scene, they come in and, um, Oh, it just means I think, you know, they, they say, Oh, we think we got to be careful. Um, we need to go faster. I don't know that anybody's suspicious yet, but. Oh, in the lab. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I will do whatever you say. So maybe she doesn't know. She's oh, it's just... not. It's not a spoiler because in the the actual dialogue, they say the old man's calculations were were precise. There's a large oh, concentration right. of uranium under the castle. So at yeah, this that's... point, it may be you, if you're smart enough, and I'm not, but if you if you're smart enough, you might be able to. Um put the pieces, you know, connect the dots that the information that Shinton was going to go get and reveal was the fact that Sir Ballgag found out about the uranium. And um, now the Stefan character and Carol also know about it. So um, when I just remember when I just asked you, do you think Carol knows about the uranium? Obviously she does because Stefan just told her and she probably mm-hmm. already knew. So, but okay. anyway, uh, I wonder how people just happen to find uranium in their dungeon of a castle. I mean, what gives you the idea to go looking for uranium in the first place? And if you find it, isn't that shit radioactive? Yeah. And, you know, if it was buried under the castle, the only way that you would even suspect to look for it would be if some sort of side effect came about as a result of there being uranium, right? Like people started getting sick or... um, Or there's pink clouds around your castle. (laughs) It could be, right? (laughs) You Your mean, secretary gets old and You mean that's uh, not cherry blossoms? It's actually the the haze <laughs> of the uranium. <laughs> uh so the next scene um is Elizabeth and Jack outside the room. Somebody's room. I don't know if it's her room or no, it's his room. Mm-hmm. Um but she's wearing the outfit from earlier. And she's already changed. She already changed into a different outfit. Like we saw her sitting outside where he's reading the newspaper. She's wearing a different outfit. And that's the outfit that she wears when she goes to the cafe. And now she's wearing the other outfit again. Okay. And here he's wearing the black suit. And let's see. What was he wearing the last time we saw him? Pretty sure it was the gray suit. Let me see. No, he's... No, he's wearing a blue suit. He's wearing suit a blue suit, yeah. At the restaurant. And she's wearing the tan jacket with the... Okay. He's still wearing blue in this scene, I think. Or maybe it's black. I can't tell. 
It's a little bit more blue than her dress. Well, it looks pretty damn black. Eh, I don't know. So he says something to her about, you know, do you want to stay with me? If you're scared, I'll be happy to sleep on the couch. Um, I mean, dude, this dude, man, like he's got this, uh, you know, beauty pageant winner as a fiance and he hasn't consummated the relationship yet. He's well, his first suggestion was, do you want Blanche to sleep with you? <laughs> and I was thinking, Ooh, that, you know, that might be fun. <laughs> Let's yeah. see that one. Yeah. But then he's like, Oh, well, do you want me to sleep on your couch? Dude. Uh, and then they engage in the unsexiest kiss in cinema history. Yes. And. Ugh. But then immediately and, after she shuts the door, she's all hot and bothered and like starting with the hallucinations. Right. Yeah. And for the people who are watching the YouTube version, this is where it gets confusing if you don't know what's been left out, okay? So she is in this black and white outfit. She grabs her throat in this kind of passionate, like self-loving kind of movement. And then in the YouTube version, the next thing we see is this weird gloved zombie hand and um, a dark figure with a cape walking up some steps. Now, all the things that happen in between those two scenes, I have notes on. And if you saw the uncut <laughs> version, then you'll know what happens. So, um, yeah, you're missing a lot of fun. You're missing a YouTube lot of fun. Version. Um, Liz is, let's see here in my notes, Liz naked walking towards the bed with candles on either side. Then we cut back to Liz in her clothes. She's laying on the bed. Her legs are all over the place. Then we cut to her naked on the bed in the other scene. Then we cut back to her clothed on the bed. Um, then we cut back to the bed with Jack uh, and her making love. And we get a little bit of a nip slip, which I'm not sure why that happened. If she was covering her breasts in the previous version, maybe she's just getting more and more um, or less and less inhibited. Right. Uh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um then uh, we go back to Liz alone in the bed. She's taking her clothes off. We jump back to Liz and Jack again, having sex. Then we're back to Liz again by herself in the room. Um, she takes off her clothes. She changes into a nightgown. Uh, and I think that's all of the missing scenes. So there's some nudity. There's some sex. But it's basically another sequence like we saw before where we're not sure if she's dreaming, if she's hallucinating what really happened. Um, uh, you know, and we don't really see, uh, the man, you know, the man who eventually you see the man with the zombie hand walking up the steps. And the very next scene is Carol and Claudine, and Elizabeth having tea and she's in a different outfit. So I'm supposed to assume that this is the next day. So, so what the hell happened? I don't know. Right? That's my question. The, the scene with the guy with the zombie hand walking up the steps was that at the end of the night 
or was that at the beginning of the day? Like, what happened? I, what, we don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Kind of. I think there might have been an editing screw up where it was supposed to be Ghosty Boy realized he could go up there and bang her while she's drugged out. And he was going up there to do that again. Right. But they didn't cut it similarly to the last way where when he walks in, she sees him as Jack. Right, right. And even if that was what they meant, it would have been redundant. But if they meant something else, it didn't mean anything because he's going up the steps. She's tripping and blissing out on the bed. And snap, just like that, she's having, what, tea time with the girls? Yeah, um, that's really confusing. There is a quick scene after she takes off her black outfit and puts on her nightgown. There's a, a cut to the door. It's out of sequence. So for the YouTube people, yes, the zombie hand going up the rail. We then cut back to her in the nightgown getting into bed. Mm. She's still hot and bothered, you know, moving mm-hmm. her hands around. Oh, right. Okay. Then the door opens. Ghosty boy walks in. And I guess they do it again. Well, if we want to give Casa Pinta any kind of credit, we should point out that the way the man's identity is obscured in the fantasy parts of those scenes is very similar to the way that Stefan's identity is obscured when he's with Carol. Okay. Yep. And if the line is blurred for Elizabeth as a character, it's also blurred for us as the audience. No, it's definitely Jack in the, in the sex scenes. You can tell. Okay. Yeah. But you're right. We don't know still at this point as an audience member whether Stefan, quote unquote, is actually Jack. Because it could be. Well, we know that the the black room with the, you know, the, the sexier bits of the fantasy, right? Where she's with Jack. Yeah. That's a fantastical uh, heightened reality. Right. And then it, it cuts to the shot of her actually in her room that we know. And the lighting is more regular and she's not in some kind of weird black floating space with a bed. And we see the ghosty guy walk into that reality. We only see Jack in the fantasized version. Right. So I think... The idea was that whoever Ghosty Guy is. Uh, he's having his way. Yeah. He's taking advantage of her altered state. Right. Okay. So that's really one of the big differences between the YouTube version and the uncut version. Um, I don't know, again, what other versions are available out there. If this was on DVD before it came out in blue. Um, but... We eventually make it back to the scene where the three women are having tea. And um, 
she starts talking about how I'm not going to be able to stay here and live here. Um, it's too boring. I would never get used to it. Um, okay, right there, there's a subtitle slip. She says in the subs, no, definitely not. It's too boring. Okay. What she actually says in Italian is it's too sad. Oh, okay. That's a big difference. She doesn't say boring at all. Yeah. yeah. Um, But it's kind of neither, right? I mean, it's not sad or boring. It's, it's frightening or, or, or just weird. Like didn't, I thought the whole idea here was that Elizabeth feels like she's in another world and it's partly because of the drug she's being given, but Mm -hmm. neither, I wouldn't expect sad or boring to be a result of being drugged and living in a weird castle. But anyway. Yeah. And I wonder what she remembers when she wakes up the next day, because if she is having actual uh, relations with a man while she's tripping, Mm -hmm. when she wakes up, I mean, wouldn't you know that something happened? Oh, maybe he cleaned up real good. I don't know. (laughs) I guess. I don't know. Maybe he, you know, maybe he pulled out and, and, <laughs> went elsewhere to finish off. I don't know. Who knows? Okay. <laughs> and, well, you're right. I don't. Okay. The difference between boring and sad, there is a difference. But mm-hmm. if you think that they both don't make a whole lot of sense, then they're kind of the same. True. Okay, so... All right, so so they continue to talk, and they talk about Renault, the rich industrialist who has made an offer on the castle. And before the end of that scene, they cut to the two men talking, and they're having this very practical discussion about the fact that um, Elizabeth seems to be less and less emotionally stable. Um, and the friend basically says, look, I don't know why you're wasting your time. Just sell this fucking thing and be on with it. You know, be done with yourself. Of course, that's not what he said at the table at the beginning of the movie, but whatever. Um, you know, she's in this weird environment. She's in a state of shock. Uh, you know, uh, but you know, it, it seems like Jack is starting to be more and more suspicious about the things that are going on. And he turns into the amateur detective at this point. Um, When they left, when we left the scene before with the women having tea, did they talk about, I don't think that's the scene where they ask Renault to come over. I think that's, that's later on in the film because they, they, they set up a meeting with Renault. They told, they tell him to come, to the house to talk about the offer. And then Jack leaves and goes into town with uh, Andrea. But anyway, um, we see Jack, he's got his pipe. He goes outside. We see Edward. Edward comes out and says, you know, what are you doing up? And he says, uh, my father always said, if you can't sleep, go for a walk. And he said, that's a great idea. Um, but there's this very quick thing that happens 
before Edward goes into the, the door to end this particular scene, he turns around and looks back kind of suspiciously. And um, I think they did that on purpose to make you yeah. suspicious about him. Um, mm-hmm. So outside we see Andrea. He's doing some more gardening. Uh, he asks, what's wrong with, um, he asks the dog, what's wrong with you? How come you don't eat? Uh, he refuses to eat. He's been very irritable lately. Uh, all he does is howl all night long. Um, if animals could talk, who knows what they would say to us. Uh, and then he runs off. There he goes. He's going to go to the chapel door and start howling again. And we know, and of course, of course, Jack is smart enough to say, well, when animals act like that, there's clearly always a reason, um, mm-hmm. which nobody wants to find out about until later. Uh, <laughs> we then go to a quick shot of more eye drops and more synthesizer sounds of the purple liquid. Um, then we cut to Elizabeth in her room with her nightgown on again, but this time she's wearing like high heels or flats or something. Um, I guess she takes the shoes off before she gets in bed. She gets in bed. Oh, she drops the, she, she's drinking her nightly, um, hallucinogen cognac milk concoction, uh, out of like Mm -hmm. a teacup. And she drops it on the floor and just kind of leaves it there. Um, I guess Edward will clean it up tomorrow. Uh, but now um, we have <laughs> probably the most um, entertaining sequence in the film, which is, uh, okay, Elizabeth wakes up. She still can't sleep. She shows off her legs. Can't get tired of that. Um She makes her hair even more messed up than it already is. She walks over to the table. She picks up a book. She starts thumbing through it. Nah, I don't want to look at it. Um, All of a sudden, we see a figure coming in. And uh, then we see the black gloves and the hooded figure who abducts her and tries to incapacitate her. She passes out, I don't know, from if it was just from fear or from some sort of substance on the hand, like they always do. But in either way, he carries her down into the catacombs past all of the weird stuff. Torches are lit on the wall for the first time. I don't think I ever saw that before. Right. Um, no, 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 we didn't see torches before. So this is, I guess, one clue that this is a hallucination. But also the other clue is there's three guys. They get into the, eventually bring her into the torture chamber. There's three figures that are all dressed with hoods and black and black gloves. But there aren't that many people in the cast. So um, (laughs) like you're trying to say, well, okay, the first person that abducted her and brought her down could have been um, Stefan. And then maybe one's Edward and one is uh, Carol, but then Carol comes out out of nowhere and she's not dressed in a hood. So, right. But before that happens, they attach her to the X, the cross thing. Um, and when she wakes up and, and realizes where she is, she doesn't do anything except make weird faces. She doesn't scream. 
Um, right. And they're all just standing there with their, with their arms crossed. Uh, she wakes up and it's very psychedelic. And this is where there are a couple of additional edits for censorship. Carol comes down the steps. She's not wearing her glasses. One of the hooded figures goes over and grabs the top of Elizabeth's dress and rips it off. In the YouTube version, they cut away and they go right to the whipping scene. But in the unedited version, it's, it's really not much of a difference in this case. Most of the cuts were in the second hallucination scene. And we're getting a lot of zoom work on the camera. Carol takes out this cat of nine tails whip and hands it to one of the figures and she starts getting whipped. And yes, there's a lot of like psych out, you know, psychedelic zoom in, zoom out kind of thing. And Carol's got this look on her face. Like, I wish I was doing this instead of somebody else. And then she puts her hand up and says, stop. And now uh, the three figures with hoods on all approach her with hot irons out of the fire to brand her. I guess. And then she wakes up and she's in her bed. So this was a nightmare or it was a hallucination or it was both, but was she ever really abducted and brought down there? You think, or was that all just part of the hallucination? Well, considering what happens next, I think that that was just a nightmare that she had because coming up, she wakes up, Screaming, and then and then puffy shirt zombie man comes in, right, and sees that she didn't drink her trippy milk. Yeah, he he sees the the spilled milk and the um the broken cup after she passes out from fear. But see, here's the thing, right? Like in the in the first two dream things. She falls asleep, and then the things that happen while she's asleep may have been happening in real life by the person in the room. Um, because she was hallucinating it as Jack. Right. But in this, in this scene, time, like the whole thing about um, the guy coming into the room and with the black gloves on and taking her down the steps, like that looked like it really happened because they didn't make it. They didn't make you feel like you were watching a dream sequence or a hallucination. It was just, Hey, somebody entered the room and uh, well, she would have had some marks on her chest from being whipped. Right. It, d- it definitely didn't happen. I, I guess what I'm saying is it's probably a continuity issue, like, or, or, yeah. or something they didn't really think too much about. But yes, when she, when she wakes up, she doesn't have, the whipping marks or the branding marks. So we know that that was just a hallucination, but then there's the zombie boy who comes in. Um, and he noticed he, he puts his hand over her mouth and then he looks to see that the, the, and again, if she didn't drink the milk or the, the drug and dropped it, why would she have a hallucination about the, the torture chamber? So I don't know. Maybe that was just a dream. Well, yeah, I think that was a dream dream. Right. And the reason she freaked out was because she didn't drink the, we'll just call it acid, I guess. Right. 
And that's why she, because twice before we saw her react to it as though it was Jack or see it as Jack. Right. The intruder. This time, because she wasn't tripping, she didn't see it as Jack. She saw it as Ghostface, dude, whatever. And he realized that when he saw the, oh, she didn't drink it, oh, so it didn't right. work this time. Okay. That makes sense. So he leaves the room, and in the next scene, we are treated to the two of them sitting in front of the fire again, which isn't lit, um, and she's in... <laughs> <laughs> the outfit from before. Uh, and he's in the outfit from before. Um, yeah. Uh, Carol comes in and she says, um, can you please get Mr. Renault to come here? I want to talk to him about his offer on the castle. Um, so Carol rings for Edward. Um, and Carol says, take the car and go over to Monsignor. Monsieur, not Monsignor, Monsieur Renard. Um, tell him the lady would like to speak with him. And then what's really important here, on this occasion, before coming back, stop up in the village and pick up the groceries. So she, mm -hmm. he says, okay, no problem. Now, it's important to know that that little bit of direction was given to him while... Uh, Elizabeth and Jack were in the room, so they heard it as well. And it comes up later. Um, now, here's what I don't get. They cut to the sunset, and they cut to the dog sitting in front of the thing again. And then they cut back to the two of them sitting in the room with the red chairs. So what time of day is it? You know, <laughs> I don't know. Besides, like he decides, he tells Elizabeth, I have to go into town and send a telegram about something related to work, I guess. And when he comes outside, it's bright daytime. So the scene with the dog in front of the thing, I think it was just a bad edit, probably. And the, the little thunder, the little thunder clouds and stuff. Maybe it was just to add mm -hmm. a couple more seconds to the runtime. Who knows? Uh, so Jack comes out and he asks Andrea if he would like to go have a drink with him. And then they talk about, do you believe in ghosts? And Andrea says, I swear I saw a ghost the other night. It was all in black. I saw it with my own eyes. And Jack says, no, you probably drank too much wine. And he says, no, I really did see it. Um, meanwhile, while we're waiting for them to get to the cafe, Elizabeth is finally visiting with Jeanette for the first time. Um, she realizes that Jeanette isn't as insane as she's made out to be. And that although she can't speak, she can understand and she can write. Um, and meanwhile, while this is going on, Carol is outside the door eavesdropping on what's going on inside there. Um, Elizabeth says, I'm scared to be alone. Uh, I hate all these stories about ghosts. Um, so Jeanette starts to write something down and Carol is listening intently. And Elizabeth says, why is my life in danger? I mean, obviously that's what, 
Jeanette wrote. Then she says, <laughs> please write it all down and I'll come back in the morning. Which we know <laughs> is basically like, you know, in the 80s slashers, when the girl says, I'm going to go see what that noise was, you know that they're never coming back. Well, in Jalo, right, everybody, yeah. when somebody says, please tell me everything you know, but don't tell to me now, I'll come back later. Yeah. You've just handed them a death sentence. Okay, so the first message she writes is, your life is in danger. And then she hands it to her. And instead of reacting to that, she's like, oh, you can understand me. We can communicate. Why not write, I mean, start off with, you know, pick your headline. They killed Shenton or Shenton was murdered. That's an attention grabbing headline. She's not going to run up and say, oh, well, tell me about, tell me the rest tomorrow. Right? Right. They killed Shinton. Pass. They killed Shinton. What? What the fuck does this mean? Okay, it's scribble, scribble. Your life is in danger. Now you have their attention. And, but, again, I think uh, Elizabeth is a total fucking moron. I mean, nice legs and all. Sure, good for her. But this character <laughs> is one of the dumbest I've ever seen in a fucking Jalo. Well, we were talking about that last podcast about how you have a tendency to evaluate and incorporate personality into your evaluations of the women in this movie or any of these movies. And I'm just trying to tell you not to, um, but <laughs> well, I mean, as a character, right, right. No, no. Okay, I if I was reading this as a book and inventing what they look like with my own imagination, right. right. This character is a dumbass. <laughs> I'm sure the actress is a nice lady and she picks interesting roles apparently, but <laughs> she does. <laughs> and I look forward to exploring her filmography at some point in the future. Right. But uh, Elizabeth is an idiot. Yes, she and, certainly um, is. And well, Shinton has already paid for her stupid bullshit and now Jeanette's about to pay for it too. Right. Because she can't be bothered to find out what the fuck is going on when she's running around the whole movie saying, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I would like as much info about this as possible, but let's not talk about it right now. Let's talk about it later. Yeah, tell me later. Tell me later. After you're dead. I'm telling you, she's a procrastinator. Elizabeth the procrastinator. Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, and then again, you know, she, the actress blamed everything on the director. So maybe that's, that's the problem. So. Well, if I had to play this character, I'd be pissed at the director, too. <laughs> and he was also one of the writers. So Yeah, be, no, that's yeah, true. I'd be very pissed. One of the 17 writers. But it's good to know that she went on to bigger and better things, like <laughs> deportation women of the SS. And... <laughs> women in prison, Nazi exploitation. Hell yeah. That's going to be the next child but she child. played the, But she played the boss, so. She's moving up. She's moving up. She's not the victim anymore. Yeah, what if we did women in prison, Chow Chow? <laughs> no, just Well, no, because only... that would... Yeah, there'd be like, what, 10, 20 episodes? Nazi. Nazi sympathizer women in prison. Yeah. Yeah, they'd bring it down to single digits. <laughs> but most of them wouldn't be Italian, so we'd have to call them something else. Right. 
like uh, Nazi exploitation women in prison, Guten talk. <laughs> <laughs> right. It would have to be Guten talk. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the last thing we see is that um, uh, Carol, what's her name? Is it Carol? I keep forgetting. Yeah. Carol. Yeah. Carol. Who was eavesdropping at the door. She's eavesdropping at the door. And now she knows that all of the information that Jeanette has is going to be written down overnight. And so she'll probably mm-hmm. have something to do with fixing that problem. Uh, the next scene we see uh, Cordova and he's sitting in his car. And then we see Jack and uh, Andrea show up at the cafe. Now I did not expect that the place where everybody was dancing and hanging out on the inside looks like this on the outside, but maybe that's just the way cafes look. Uh, it looked like a beaten down flop house on the outside, but then they go into the cafe and uh, lo and behold, everyone is wearing the same clothes again. Yep. Uh, they get a couple of glasses of wine from the owner. Um, Oh, and this one's funny, too, because they, uh, the owner asks Andrea, why haven't we seen you in a while? And he says, well, I'm old and the road is long. And um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm too old to make the walk. I'm too old to make the walk. Uh, the walk. Basically. Yeah. And then we finally get Cordova, a beer for Mr. Cordova. Would you like your usual table? And he says, no, it doesn't matter. I'm just getting a drink. I'm just getting a beer. Uh, so then Jack asks the owner of the cafe, Renaud. Uh, what do you know about him? And he says, nobody knows too much about him. We know he's a real gentleman. Um, he doesn't talk to anyone. He keeps to himself. Um, but I can't think of anything else for now. And then a really important other scene happens, which is the delivery boy walks over to the owner and says, um, I'm going to bring the, supplies over to the castle now and the owner says yeah go ahead and hurry up this time don't be late because you got in trouble but then jack says wait a minute i thought edward uh came already to collect the provisions for the castle and um do we have an actual name for this cafe owner who's wearing the beret well they switch from joseph in the subtitles to jose in the spoken language. Oh, okay. So basically, Joe. I didn't notice that, but okay. He says, I haven't seen him in a while. Um, I haven't seen him since he had his accident. Uh, he had to go to the doctor. He cut his hand on a hook, and um, it was a really bad wound. Um, I haven't seen anything else after that. I hope he's okay. Um, and then Andrea says, I don't, you know, I don't know why he didn't mention it to me. He kept it quiet. Um, so Jack is now suspicious and he says, can you give me the doctor's address? Because, you know, there's probably only one doctor in the whole town. Um, <laughs> and then the other funny part is he says, okay, Andrea, do you want to come with me? He's like, nah, I'll stay here and walk home. And I'm like, right. didn't you just say it was too far to walk? Or maybe it's downhill now. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's downhill and uh, his wheels are a little more greased. Yeah, from the, the wine. Because he switches <laughs> to the second glass, too. Yeah. 
And and um, to your point earlier, where Shinton could not be bothered to drink from Elizabeth's glass, uh, Andrea doesn't give two shits and switches his glass with the one that Jack was drinking out of. Meanwhile, um, well, he's a pro. Yeah, yeah, that's true. He's a pro wine drinker. He's not too proud to finish somebody else's drink. Meanwhile, Cordova gets a phone call or makes a phone call. Um, and I think in this phone call, we actually see who's on the other end of the phone. Um, yeah. He says, we must stop. What's Jack interesting to me is yeah. he's making this phone call standing directly behind Andre. Right. Okay. Uh, no, I don't think we see the face. I mean, we see the person on the other end. Yeah, but Cordova doesn't say anything other than, yeah, okay, tonight I'll take care of it. So that wouldn't really clue Andre in to anything. Yeah, but he's making the phone call, so he must have said something. I mean, you don't just call somebody and they answer the phone and tell you, you know. Well, he might have he said, must have said, it's me or something. That, okay. Could have been. Well, even if he did, Andre's probably too drunk or yeah, he's not paying attention. Uninterested to to be of any consequence. But they know okay. this Cordova so. character. He's got you know he he has a presence in the town. They know who he is. So mm-hmm. he's been around for a little while. Okay. So anyway, uh, Jack decides to go visit the doctor, um, and the doctor says, um, "I don't know why he never came back." He needed to get the stitches out. Um, Or I think that's what he says. And then, you know, it says his hand, you know, was definitely bandaged um, and -hmm. should have stayed that way until he came back to see me. And so now if you're paying attention or if you remember from the very beginning, we saw a body being dragged across the ground um, and it's a man with a bandaged hand. Now, up until the second time I went through this film and, and put those two things together, I thought the guy in the very first scene being dragged was Senor Ballsack or whatever his name is, uh, Ballgag. I thought it was the mm-hmm. uncle that they were showing. Um, but it wasn't. It was Edward, right? So now that Jack knows that something's up, and that Edward maybe really isn't Edward, he leaves uh, to go back to the house to to intercept what's going on with um, with with Paul because right. he now has the information that he needs. But before that happens, Cordova uh, seems to have chased him down the road and cuts him off, pulls a gun on him. Um, so obviously Cordova is working with Stefan and <laughs> a fight ensues <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, it, you know, uh, it's back and forth, but eventually um, Jack gets the upper hand and he smushes uh, Cordova's face and um, pushes him down the hill. And I think at one point Jack even swings from a branch during the fight. But ultimately, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Jack wins. He heads back up to his car. 
His hair is all messed up. His jacket is full of mud. He takes the jacket off. Can't be bothered with this anymore. Looks in the mirror and fixes himself, fixes his hair, fixes his face, and then drives back. Yeah, he, he's got to look good. He's got to look good, right. Uh, and if it was me, just out of spite, I would have done something to mess up Cordoba's car. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah, sure. Like release the brake and push it down the hill or something. <laughs> well, he doesn't have time for that. He's got to get back to the... Oh, that's right. He's got to go save his... His, his, his LSD... His golden parachute. Little... I mean, his girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so getting back to the castle, we now see Jeanette. She's in her wheelchair again. And um, the dark figure with the gloves... And the black shirt and pants comes back in. Now, something to bring up real quick. There are two different people. I'm sorry. There are two different costumes in this movie. One is the black, all in black with the black gloves. And the Mm -hmm. other one is this person who's dressed up to look like the 500-year-old Robin. I think that was his name, right? Right. But it's the yeah. same person, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's it's the same person. It's Stefan. Well, we don't know that yet. We don't, but we, yeah. Okay. So. Oh, man. So, so here comes uh, <laughs> this figure in black. He, he abducts uh, Jeanette in a similar manner to the way Elizabeth was abducted, hand over the mouth. But this time he pushes the wheelchair out in the hallway, down the... the down the hallway and um, eventually uh, throws her over the side of one of the walls to her death. And importantly, it's dark nighttime. (laughs) Definitely the middle of the night. Definitely dark nighttime. Yes. Right. And then, then we go back to the next scene, which is complete daytime. And Mm -hmm. Jack is driving back again, (laughs) still driving, still driving, still driving. Uh, And this time another car cuts him off and I'm like, wait a minute. Is it Cordova? No, he cuts somebody off. He cuts somebody off and it ends up being Paul. Right. Who says. um, Right. The whole town drives white cars. Yeah. Apparently. Clearly. What happened to that red roadster he was driving earlier? Remember at the beginning of the film? Who, we don't see oh, that Oh, yeah, yeah. Where is that? That's a good question. Well, yeah. I mean, he's... He yeah, anyway. Doesn't know. We don't know. So he meets up with Paul, mm-hmm. and he says, look, um, I know you were called over here to talk to my wife about the... Or my, you know, to talk to Elizabeth about the castle, but she's got a bad migraine. I, what, did they say that in Italian, or was that just in the, uh, in the subtitles? I don't remember that being exactly what they said as far as a migraine, but he did say that she wasn't feeling well. Is there a modern translation in Italian for the word migraine? Oh, yeah. Is it? Migrana. Oh, okay. That's what I thought. Basically the The same same word. Okay. Yeah. So Jack says, look, I'm sorry to inconvenience you, but we're going to have to postpone this for another day. And uh, Paul is like, okay, no problem. And. So he drives off and Jack drives in and parks his car in the middle of the forest for some reason. 
and then walks into the grounds. Uh, I don't know, like this kind of confused me a little bit because it's almost as if he purposely pulls the car into a different spot so that he can go looking around for whatever suspicious thing he's looking to find. Yeah, like he was coming in the... Yeah, like he wanted to be undetected yeah. from whoever's in the house. So he goes through the gate, and then he finds the dog, and he says, hey, you know, tell me where your owner is. Tell me where your owner is. Now, was that what he... Do you think that's what he was looking for the whole time? Like, the dog? Or is it just that he happened to r- happen upon the dog being there, and he's like, oh, well, I can use the dog as a detective? Well... I don't know. He's been hearing from Andre that this dog has been hanging out at the door to the crypt, howling. But he needs, hey, dog, where's your owner? I mean, connect the fucking dot, Jack. And yeah, you don't need the dog go. again. All you need to do is go to the crypt. He's been sitting outside. Right. And if he suspects or thinks he knows that the Edward at the house is not the real Edward, because if it was, he'd have a fucked up hand from this hook injury, whatever that was. Why not go directly to find the fake Edward? Right. Why do you have to fill in all the other gaps in the the puzzle before? Yeah. Because I wouldn't think, okay, Edward is gone, or the real Edward has been replaced by an imposter somehow. Uh, Where's the body? Maybe it's in the crypt. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, they've got to tell the story, you know, piece by piece. And they also have to fill time. Um, and and sometimes when we get into these discussions, I, I sit back and wonder, are, are we spending too much time um, talking about why the plot doesn't make sense and not talking about, I don't know, we didn't really talk at all through this entire discussion about anything related to, uh, you know, the, the aesthetic aspects of the filmmaking. I mean, we did kind of talk about the set design (laughs) and we talked about the weirdness with uh, the lighting. um, But we didn't really have anything to comment on when it, when it came to, you know, the shots and the framing and all of that stuff. But I don't know, I guess another podcast can do that. We, we, our, our job is to try to make sense out of nonsense. And uh, that's why it yeah. takes four hours. <laughs> and that's why people love us. Exactly. I mean, come on. You get the most jollo bang for your jollo you buck totally do. with us. And well, I, per, okay. I've asked myself this sometimes too. It's like, you know, we do these hours long episodes about these films and I spend 90% of the time sounding like I'm pissed and picking up the part and <laughs> it sounds that way, but I'm trying to find ways to like it. Right. Or sometimes even the flaws that I'm pointing out and the stuff that doesn't make sense, it's actually kind of fun. Yes. Oh, Absolutely. Because when I point out something that I think is really stupid, half the time I can hear myself when I'm editing my isolated, I end up laughing at the end of it, which means I'm enjoying myself in spite of whatever I think is so stupid and weird. But Right, right. Yeah. Um, uh, no, you're right. I mean, like, uh, 
it's almost like that's kind of the default way of talking about these films in 2023. Like, I don't know, just the idea that let's, let's pick out the um, issues with the consistency and the continuity and the script and um, maybe, you know, maybe don't really need to spend that time, that much time doing it, but it just seems like that's, what you naturally gravitate towards when you're talking about the film. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if it ain't broke, don't fix it, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, Jack finally makes his way to the, uh, the crypt or the chapel. Right. And then all of a sudden we see Claudine in her awesome coat and boots coming up behind Jack. Jack makes his way into the crypt. He's looking around and um, we see something. We see one of the oh, Elizabeth Elizabeth ball gag. Okay, we see the Elizabeth ball gag. Um, I guess it's the the mausoleum, you know, slab or whatever. It says fifteen ninety two to sixteen fourteen, which means she was. Uh, yeah, that was the woman that. Uh, that Carol told the current Elizabeth about. Right. And she only lived to be 22. I guess. <laughs> well, I, I don't see the years. 1590. I, I mean, I, no, when you, when did you, did you get to the part yet where Jack is looking at the crypt? Yeah. Okay. Right there. Yeah. Pause. 1590. Oh shit. I'm getting a headache. Math. <laughs> okay, so, okay, 92 to 16 is 8. 8 plus 4. Yeah, she was 22. Right. Elizabeth Ballgag. Yeah. So now um, Black is starting to go crazy because there's this little section in the crypt that looks like it's newly plastered over compared to the rest. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Jack decides he's going to pull a Mark Daly in deep red and try to chip away at the, at the stucco <laughs> to reveal the painting of the, the child who stabbed his mother at Christmas. But apparently that's not yeah. what happens. And he can't really get very far with this nail. So he gets this giant iron thing and just smashes through it. And then the director probably said, now rip the rest of it out with your hands. And he said, but, but I really can't, you know, cause it's done in there really, you know, um, ultimately it's revealed that there's a body and the body is of the real Edward. And when they show you a close up of his face, his eyes are darting back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> so he's not really dead, but I guess, you know, um, we're not again with the lighting probably wouldn't have noticed that if it was a uh, lower fidelity. Right. So the next thing that happens is the black, the figure in black walks through a door, but it's not a door to where they are. I think Jack just hears something. He pokes his head up from what he's looking at and then decides to go follow the sounds of these noises. And meanwhile, uh, Claudine is also following behind. 
Now, she's been in the crypt before. She's been looking for the uranium with her Pew-36 explosive space modulator. <laughs> and uh, that's the first thing I think of when I hear uranium. Uh, okay. <laughs> so the pursuit is on. And um, Jack is trying to find where the noises are coming from. Claudine's trying to follow Jack. And Jack finds his way into the science lab with all of the uh, wonderfully day glow uh, colors of vile specimens and the Kool-Aid, uh, the Kool-Aid jar, the hard hat, the ax, <laughs> um, looking through papers, he sees the chemistry homework on the board and, um, he's looking through more papers and more papers. And then I think, ah, okay. So he opens the, he, he opens one of the curtains that looks like a wall, but isn't really a wall. And he sees the costume for the zombie boy. And yeah. not only does he see the costume for the zombie boy, but he also finds the tape recorder that has someone yelling, Elizabeth, Elizabeth. Um, yeah. But he is then interrupted by Claudine, who says, um, congratulations, Mr. What does she say? Oh, no, she doesn't say that. She says, congratulations, something. What does she say? Uh, Mr. Seaton. Yeah, who's that? Yeah, is that him. I guess that's his last name. Jack, I guess Jack Seaton. Okay. Um. Uh. So, what are you doing here? Well, I'm doing the same thing as you. I'm trying to uh, solve this crime, but I'm with the national police, and we're looking for a man named Stefan Barcos, who is a very dangerous criminal. Uh, well, we're not going to tell you any more than that. Uh, go upstairs, Jack. It's for the best. As soon as I find what I'm looking for, I will be with you. Um, you should also know that uh, Mr. Shinton, who was working with Dr. Ballgag, not doctor, uh, Sir Ballgag, on uranium research, was found dead in the river. And Jack says, I thought as much. But... Okay, but if but, you were but, him, but but, but but go ahead, but, go ahead. But but <laughs> I thought that Mr. Shitton didn't know what was going on. But if he was working with Mr. Ballgag on uranium research, then that's clearly the answer, right? That was the thing that Shitton wanted to go back to London to check the papers for to tell Elizabeth about why he would or wouldn't want to be selling the castle in the first place. But now she just says they were working together to do uranium research. So what the fuck? Anyway, what were you saying? <laughs> and then Jack says, I thought as much. I thought like as he had much. any fucking clue. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. That's what I thought. Like you knew shit about the <laughs> uranium. Okay. You just found the body of the real Edward who's been hidden in a crypt. <laughs> and then you follow this tunnel downstairs because you hear this noise and you find this secret science lab and <laughs> all this weird stuff. You find the costume of some kind of zombie ghost monster thing. Oh, I don't know. And then the cute little painter girl that you kind of flirted with in front of your fiance, but she was too stupid to figure it out. Comes barging in, saying she's a cop. Trust everything I say. Oh, uh, okay. Without even asking for a badge. Yeah. Or 
Hey, you have any identification? Yeah. Oh, you want me to leave? Okay, sure thing. Got it. Oh, you're a cop? Fine. Whatever. <laughs> oh, he's looking for uranium? Yeah, that's what I thought, too. Yeah. I'll see you upstairs. I mean, get the fuck out of here, All right. Well, it's all very believable in, in a certain sort of way. So <laughs> Jack makes his way back up to the castle and walks in to... Um, find Edward sitting there or standing there. I'm sorry. Um, and Jack like point blank asks him about his hand. What happened to your hand? (laughs) Um, you cut it on a hook and Edward says, no, you must be mistaken. And then you never injured yourself because you aren't Edward. And then they start a fight. (laughs) You should never have gotten involved. Uh And then, uh, I guess, uh, Edward pulls a gun and Jack says, well, go ahead and shoot if you want everyone to come in here. And then they start fighting. Now, of course, they're fighting in a room with so many weapons. So many weapons. And I think they go through every single one. I think they do, too. Because at the end, they go back to fist fighting when they've run out of uh, blades. Now, while they're fighting, we cut to Carol going through some papers. But... I'm thinking about this again. I originally thought that the papers were information about the uranium, but it's possible that because she's in the same room where they read the will and maybe she's looking up stuff about the will. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't really matter anyway, because all of this is solved and, and, and buttoned up at the end and whatever Carol um, learned by looking through those papers really has nothing to do with anything as far as I remember. So um, I don't know why they threw those scenes in there, but. Yeah. And it's confusing because Claudine says, uh, I'm looking for documents that prove it. They should be here. But she says that in the science lab. Right. Right. Well, ma- So well, maybe, were those the yeah. papers that we saw? Jack pick up and flip through real quick before he dismissively put him back down. But then we see Carol in this office. Right. Library, With her whatever the hell it is. Right. Yeah. But then there were the papers that uh, Shinton had to go back to London <laughs> to look at. So where's this fucking uranium report? There's five different copies of this report and no one knows... And everyone has it. Everybody knows about it, but nobody has it. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody has a copy, but the copy that they have is not the one they're looking for. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Whatever you say. Uh, And... You know, oh, I have another question about the whole motive, but we'll get there in a second. So they continue to fight. They continue to fight. Um, Jack gets the upper hand eventually. And I'm thinking Jack's getting the upper hand because this is an old man. Um, You would think. And then Claudine comes in. No, it's not Edward. This is this is Stefan Barcos. He's the man we've been looking for. And then in comes Carol. And she's like, um, who invited you? And she said, someone's going to, someone who's going to be inviting you soon. I guess that means prison. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the fourth time he changed his name. 
Um, it was all going well, but this time he made the mistake of changing his face. All right. Well, she said she found the document she was looking for. Oh, did so she that say that? that? Oh, question. okay. Yeah. And he said, <laughs> the dialogue on this. Uh, okay. Punch, punch. Okay. Finally, the butler, whoever the hell he is, is finally uh, tired out. She busts in. She pulls a pistol. That man is Stefan Barkos, Mr. Seaton. I found the documents I was looking for. He just looks at the writer and says, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> is that what he says? Yeah. But I would like to know who Stefan Barkos was. How about, do you have any cuffs on you, cop lady? Because this crazy butler imposter is throwing swords at me when there's a rack full of spears right behind him. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a hand. <laughs> but then she's so okay. So then she says he's changed his name four times, but this time he made a mistake because he changed his face, which he could only do if Carol was in on it, right? Because if Carol wasn't in on it, um, well, I don't know. What the hell does she mean? I mean, because. Edward is one of the guys that Carol knows. So uh, I don't know. I don't know what she's talking about. I'm glad. Yeah. Okay. So glad. she's saying his mis uh, his mistake <laughs> was changing his face, which, okay, I agree. It's got to be a lot harder to assume somebody's identity and make a mask of them that fools even, uh, Andre, the groundskeeper. Right. And without help. Right. So I guess she's basically saying, you know, uh, Carol is also implicated in this thing, just in case you were wondering about whether or not Carol was um, good or bad. Okay. So I guess their mistake was in taking the place of the real Edward, they had to kill him. And because of that hook injury, that was the thread that unraveled their whole story. But the whole point of killing Edward was to assume his identity. Um, for what reason? Just because he's a criminal and he needs to stay incognito? Or was it to be on the inside so that he could, you know... Um, continue to, to to be close to the the plot. Like, is he is he pretending to be Edward so that yeah, that's you know, so that he can listen in okay, on everything so that's going Okay, so you're going to pose as a country gentleman neighbor who's interested in buying the castle, but at the same time, doing double duty, you also have to pose as the butler. Because you got to be there hearing stuff with your own ears and manipulating things yourself. You don't trust this crazy governess bitch who only comes alive when she takes her glasses off and lets her <laughs> hair down. Right. And ugh, what was supposed to happen when Renault came over to the house to visit? Was Edward just going to, oh, I'm on break. Oh, I got to go to town. Uh, this is my nap time. 
you're never going to see Edward and Renault in the same place at the same time. Right. Though that's a good And why create all question. that extra hassle for yourself? Right. That's a really good question, actually, because let's say Jack didn't do all that investigation at the end of the movie and uh, Paul came over to the house to entertain the idea of discussing the sale of the castle and they would, right, and, like and they would, going and they would ring for some champagne to celebrate, you know, the, uh, to celebrate the agreement. And then who's bringing the champagne, right? Cause there's no Edward. Right. <laughs> it seems like it would have been easier if this Barco's guy played the part of Renault, but came in through like the secret tunnels to do the spooky freak out Elizabeth shit without having to be Edward at the same time. Yeah. It's, it you know doesn't I mean? make any sense. Like why wouldn't Renault just be Renault? Like he's clearly not really Renault. He's Stefan Barcos, right? Yeah. So why couldn't he just remain Renault? Or just be Renault and let uh, let Carol get rid of the uh, the niece who inherited the place. Yeah, be Renault. Um, continue on because in theory right. they haven't really. Well, okay, the part that Stefan Barcos is a dangerous criminal that the cops are looking for kind of makes him a you know somebody who's in trouble with the police. But in theory, before you get to that level of the deception if you're Renault and you just want to buy the place and you know there's uranium in there but nobody else knows and you want to buy it before the nurse the niece figures it out you're not really doing anything illegal that you could get caught right and charged for but killing the butler and taking his place that raises the stakes quite a well, bit well if he's a dangerous criminal then um, he knows that even if he changes his name and pretends, you know, and pretends to be Renault and goes incognito, that somebody eventually is going to find out who he is. Um, so he oh, has to, okay. so he has to assume the identity of, of Edward. But the problem is that he doesn't stay Edward the whole time. Like he takes the Edward mask off, which we will see in a little bit. Um, and goes yeah, and back to so being, how many times a day does he have to put that shit on and take it off and put it right. on and take it off? Exactly. Seems like a lot of work. Hmm. So while they're talking about um, while they're doing this discussion about who Stefan Barcos is, we cut back to the crypt where the real Edward uh, was you know, left behind and buried with his arm hanging out. And then, um, I guess all of a sudden the dog decides to run into the room. Now, were you under the impression that the dog heard something or got some sort of a last minute, like realization, like, Okay, yeah, there's my owner. I'm going to go... Because, like, I don't know. Like, dogs, they kind of know their owner's sense, right? So, 
Like the dog knows that the real Edward is buried in the crypt. So why does the dog come running? If the dog is guarding his, where his owner lives, why did the dog come running and attack? uh, The, I don't know. Maybe he was confused. I mean, maybe he sensed meaning smelled that this is not my master, but it looks like my master. It sounds like my master dresses like my master. Even though he was still drawn to the crypt where he would sit all day and kind of whine at the door. Right. And maybe when the crypt or that, that part of it was open and he saw the actual body plus the bloody bandage, which to a dog would be a, you know, a, uh, quite a big announcement mm-hmm. that is uh, yep. that's hard to deny. Yeah. Maybe he realized that that is my owner and he is dead. And even though he's probably had a couple weeks of decomposition right. <laughs> going on. And somehow his eyes maybe just got so, twitch. So. Yeah, yeah. And that, that twitching eye, he's telling me to avenge him. <laughs> so off to fight. <laughs> that's like a... Dog master Morse code <laughs> from beyond the grave. And uh, so he runs in there to kill the imposter, I guess. Yep. So it makes as much sense as anything else. Yeah, in this fucking sure. movie, exactly. So. so now as, as Stefan, uh, who looks like Edward is advancing on a sword to try to, I guess, fight his way out of this predicament. Uh, the dog comes running in. And jumps on him. He falls backwards and lands on a sword right through the back of his, right through his back and pokes through the front of his chest. And of course, he dies from that. Claudine has a kind of interesting look when she sees what happened. And then, oh, guess Mm -hmm. what? Everybody decides to show up. You know, the the friends who came to visit and uh, Elizabeth, they all pop their head in at the right moment to see uh, what happened. And uh, Claudine, not Claudine, um, Carol is is going, oh no, oh no. And uh, Claudine has a weird look on her face and the rest of the people come in. And then somebody says, take his mask off. Does, does Claudine say, take his mask off? I forgot. I think it was. Yeah. yeah. So, she takes his mask off and guess what? It's Renault. And he's got this weird bug-eyed look on his face and they don't have him on screen for very long because there's no way he could hold that bug-eyed face look still enough for a long, you know, two or three count if the camera's looking at him. <laughs> so now here we are uh with this guy it has now been revealed. He lands on the sword. He's dead. Um, Carol is beside herself with grief because she's in love with him. Um, and that's kind of it. They, they show, a, you know, they, they show the rest of the characters kind of looking on at this whole thing. And then they show Jack with this fake mask and uh okay so here's my only other question um 
what were they really going to get out of being able to, okay, uh, let me go back. Let me take a step back again. This is so stupid that we do this, but we do it. Uh, <laughs> Edward. We do it better than do it better than anyone. Stefan, who's on the run from the police, he's a dangerous criminal. He has to change his name four times. He even changed his face this time. Meanwhile, his ultimate Uh goal is to buy the castle from Elizabeth so that he Mm -hmm. can profit from the uranium. But if you have enough Mm -hmm. money to buy the fucking castle, why would you need the money from the uranium in the first place? Like, and then when it comes to dealing with or negotiating with whoever is going to give him money for this uranium, who is that going to be? And won't they say, hey, aren't you uh, Stefan Barkos? Uh, <laughs> you, you can't sell us uranium. You're going to jail. So like, uh, what the fuck? Right? Yeah. And do you think Paul Renaud, the country gentleman, is going to buy the castle that everybody in town knows and his picture's not going to end up in a newspaper somewhere? And the police are going to say, wait a yeah, minute. Yeah, that's not Renaud. That's Stefan Barcos. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And I don't know much about mining for uranium but it sounds to me like if you had it in your on some sub basement dungeon under your castle it's going to be kind of hard to get it out yeah you're going to have to demolish the whole fucking manner. castle in order to get your yeah the castle's going to be right. exactly i, I guess <laughs> oh, uh, all right well, all of that has been explained. Whether y- you buy it or not is a different story. But as far as the movie is concerned, it's all been explained. The very last scene, which is beyond stupid, is uh, all we are left with is Jack and Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, now that all of this is over, says, I don't know if I'm going to be able to live in this castle alone. And Jack says, you big dummy. <laughs> You're not going to be alone. <laughs> I will be with you. And she says, okay, that's much better. Because as long as Jack's around, she's not going to be bored or sad living in the castle. Um, and that's it. That's all we get after this big reveal. We don't get anything else from any of the characters or anything. We just get this quick scene of, um, I guess I'm going to have to stay here. Because, you know, but wait, couldn't you still sell the castle to somebody? No, no, I'm going to have to stay here and deal with the sadness and the boringness of this castle. And then he says, but wait, but you have me. And she said, oh, yes, you're right. And then. Yeah. And what the hell kind of final line is that? Okay, what should we do now, my love? I can't live in the castle by myself. And if she had said that like a little more playfully, kind of. You know, like they do in those Lifetime movies and shit. Then it could have been like she's kind of enticing yeah, yeah, to yeah, right. offer to stay. But she says it like she's dead serious and said, I can't live in this castle by myself. And she doesn't say okay. No. I can't live in this castle by myself. He responds, because he's a man and he'll take charge, goddammit. You won't have to live here alone. There will be two of us. <laughs> 
And she doesn't even really have time to smile or react. And we cut to the pink clouds of radiation right. floating around the castle Does he, again. When he says, you don't have to be alone, there will be two of us. Is that what he says in Italian? Yeah, that's exactly. Oh, okay. So, unfortunately, it doesn't make any more sense in a different yeah. language. Okay. No. And then smash cut to the end. Yeah. Yippee. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's it. That is the doll of Satan. Um, Al, why don't you do the honors of giving us your final impressions of the film and whether or not it would be a repeat viewing for you? Mm. I, yeah, I could probably watch it again. Not anytime soon. Uh, just having this discussion, I had watched it three times before we started recording, but just having this conversation kind of made me appreciate it a little bit more. Okay. Um, yeah, it's easy to say there are a lot of plot holes, but you know, we find those all the time and that doesn't necessarily make it a bad movie. And the acting was kind of garbage the technical execution, like the lighting and the costumes and uh, just some of the camera angles and shots and things being out of fucking focus, right, which right. you would think is filmmaking 101. It's kind of annoying, yeah. but it doesn't really kill it. And I, I came across a review of this that... Ends with, um, it, okay, the final line of the review is Satan's doll, which is what the uh, Google Translate switched from La Bambola di Satan, right. is one of those curiosities that we really don't regret having rediscovered. And this is after a paragraph that is like, in spite of this and in spite of that, this is all kind of goofy. Okay. It's kind of campy. It's kind of fun if you loosen up a little bit. Like we haven't in the last four hours, <laughs> but, or I haven't, it's all right. I'm, it's got some funny, goofy shit on it. Yeah. It's, it's almost, uh, so bad. It's fun. And I don't think they made it to be that way, but I think you could appreciate a lot more if you try to see it that way. Yeah. I saw in the Troy Howarth book. Uh, that I think the last line of it was, this is a contender for worst Jalo of the 60s. <laughs> and I don't know if I would go that far, but then again, he's uh, you know, he's probably watched more of them than I have. Yeah, so. I mean, that's possible, but we, we're, kind of, we're kind of closing the gap on him, to be honest. I went through yeah. uh, the first book, of his, the first, you know, the first installment and look through the, all of the films prior to bird. And we've covered a lot of them. My take on this is I would actually like to watch this again, but not so bright. I mean, I've been bringing this up the whole time we've been talking about it, but that's really what it is. I think that if this, if I watch this film a little bit uh, lower resolution, maybe a little grainy, um, mm-hmm. it would actually be more entertaining for me. Um, I think it is, 
you know, like you said, despite all of the plot holes and all the weirdness and the weird focusing, it's interesting enough to keep your attention. It's not boring. Um, most of the time, the reason why it's not boring is because you're going, why the fuck did they just do that? Or wait a minute, isn't that the outfit she just wore three days ago? So <laughs> that may be why it's not boring and not because of its actual entertaining um, content. But um, right. Yeah. I mean, I saw a blurb on the back of one of the DVD editions of it. You can have they put the little blurbs from like a, a critic or something to try to entice you to yeah. buy the movie. Mm-hmm. And the blurb said something like, it's a cross, it's half Agatha Christie and half Scooby-Doo. And I'm thinking, have you heard of a fucking Jollo? <laughs> You're right. You just described. <laughs> that's like, uh, it's half chocolate and it's half milk. <laughs> yeah, it's called chocolate milk, you dumb fuck. But... <laughs> But this one does, I mean, it was so simple and I kind of saw everything that was about to happen. Yeah. Like as soon as uh, Edward or whoever the hell he is asks her if she wants her brandy with the cognac, I was like, he's going to spike it. Right. Right. And then, uh, oh, look, he spiked it. And (laughs) it was like every plot point you see coming a mile away yeah. and it's just a question of how interestingly do they get there. yeah right but well and i it wasn't until the, oh, no, go ahead you're you gonna say it wasn't until it wasn't until this conversation that the idea that she was actually having sex with uh ghost boy yeah, the intruder. turned out to yeah. be bark yeah, yeah. That never crossed my mind. I just thought, okay, she's tripping, she's being spooked, and she's scared. And, right. But I, yeah, I never put two and two together. That, well, oh, she's actually. I didn't think that either. But then, how do you explain why Zombie Boy is in the room? You know, like if the whole idea was drug her, and the drugs are going to take care of uh, creating paranoia and hallucinations, and she's going to be driven crazy enough to sell the castle. You don't need to enter her room and, and what was he doing? Just sitting in the chair, monitoring her, her sleep to make sure that she had hallucinations. Probably not. He was probably in there to, to get his, uh, to get his, you know, get yeah. his groove on. Right. So. Which puts a whole dark layer onto this that I didn't give it credit for yeah. the first couple of times. I just thought, oh, this is some lighthearted, goofy, not very well thought out. Uh, Scooby-Doo right. movie. But honestly, that may be what it is. And we've invented this diabolical other dimension, you know. It's, it could... <laughs> because we've been jaded by watching too much something. Right. Well, it's again, it's like uh... there's a couple of scenes where we see this figure go in and out of her room during these crazy hallucination scenes. So the question is continues to be asked, what is he doing in there? Um, she's yeah. already been given the drug, so he doesn't need to go in and do anything to, you know, induce the hallucinations, um, unless he's getting it on with her, um, which. Yeah. And if he was just getting her dosed on, uh, I don't know, it's just getting her tripping on acid or something 
and trying to scare the shit out of her so that she can't stand being in the castle and decides to sell it. Why is there so much of an erotic tinge to it? Yes, true. I mean, if you're tripping on acid and somebody's trying to scare the fuck out of you, it's not that hard to do. And, uh, well, the other thing that's important to kind of think about when you're talking about acid trips is that most people don't report being, um, exceptionally over horny when they're on LSD. It's more like, you know, they're having this weird, you know, existential out of body experience, but she seems to be clearly, um, hot and bothered as a result of the drug. So it may not necessarily be just a hallucinogen. It may be, um, something that makes her exceptionally horny. But again, you know, the whole idea of this film and the marketing and the reason why you went to see it, if you went to see it, it was because it was called the doll of Satan and the cover art shows a woman <laughs> tied to a medieval cross, you know, with weird. Exactly. You know, so, so like, that's the whole reason for the movie. Although it never really comes into play except to be something, you know, entertaining to, to pass the time while you're telling the story about these, you know, this, this uranium thing. So. Right. But. So that would be a reason that you would have to take the Gothic horror and bring it to the late sixties for that psychedelic element. Right. And to be fair, they don't come right out and say, Oh, this is LSD. It's, I mean, he says this will confuse her mind and something. I mean, they don't yeah. specifically call right, it exactly. you know, like Owsley's recipe or anything. Uh, so maybe there's a little bit of MDMA or X or something <laughs> mixed into Did it. they even discover that? Well, I mean, they're, they're, I don't know. <laughs> they're, they're taking license with it. Like, oh, all these kids drop acid and fuck all night. Okay, sure. Let's make a movie about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, right. So, and... Okay, this is the part where we get to play. What if we remade this today? Or if the story had gone more into, like, if she had repressed sexual desire because uh, maybe she really wanted to bang Jack, but Jack was like, oh, no, not until we're married. I'll sleep in a separate room and, you know, stuff like that. Something that the psychedelic element would heighten or uh, bring to the forefront so that that type of encounter at night would happen with a stranger who would go in there with the intention of trying to scare her. Right. That could be kind of interesting. Or I don't know. I'm not saying there's, so many different layers to this film, but it's not that hard to imagine extra layers that would make it more interesting for me. Right. Right. I think it would be really difficult to remake this and still keep the same plot because it doesn't make any sense. So you'd have to to rewrite a lot of it. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, look, it was fun. 
I've got this, hold on. I've got this problem with my audacity where I guess it automatically turns down the recording volume level. Yeah. I just watched it. If it, if it detects that I'm being too loud, I don't know. Anyway. Um, yeah, it's an entertaining film. I don't know how often I would come back to it, especially like you said, we've already watched it a few times just for the sake of the podcast. So, um, Mm -hmm. it's not going to show up anytime soon on my radar, but I did go through the Jalo score. Well, I'll try to make this brief. I won't tell you what the score is yet because I just want some consensus on if I ticked all the boxes properly. So we have an Italian director. We have a hidden identity. We have an amateur detective. During the pre-classic period, uh, the motivation of the killer, if you want to call it a killer or the criminal, is a monetary gain. Well, they are a killer if you count. Yeah, true. Jeanette and Edward. And Mr. Shinton. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah three. So there's three there. Okay. What happens to the killer at the end? He's accidentally killed from the dog. Okay. There's at least three bodies in the body count. We have, as far as the location is concerned, I know that technically the film was made in Italy, but you're kind of your idea is that they're hinting that this is in France, but they don't actually say where it is, right? Uh, no. So I think we can... But I just read somewhere that it said it was in France. Or it was supposed to be in France. The only thing that they ever mention as far as a place is London. And that's where Elizabeth is from. And that's where Mr. Shinton is, Shinton is supposed to go back to. But I don't remember any other parts of the dialogue that talk about where they are. So the reason I ask is because I want to give it points for the Italian location or not, but I'm going to give them points for that. There's an accomplice. There's a nude scene. There's uh, at least three suspects, which that makes sense, right? And they're all the same. And they're all the same person, right? (laughs) Uh, Now the rest of this, um, there was no airplane. There was no animal or number in death or death in the title. There's no funeral. No one gets killed in a bathtub. There's no car or motorcycle racing. Would you say that there's a chase scene anywhere? A chase? Um, Either on foot or in the vehicle. I mean, you could kind of argue that Cordova coming after Jack is a chase scene, but... Well, he just drove up behind him, passed him, and then yeah, they weren't forced him to stop. They weren't. I don't think that was really a chase. There's no cheating. There's no map of the city. There's no comic relief characters. There's death from falling. Uh, there's yeah. dolls. Um, yeah. Do we want to say that um, Elizabeth is a foreigner because she comes from London? I don't know. Eh, I don't think so. There's definitely gaslighting. There's definitely hippies dancing. I gave it a point for pseudoscience just because of the chemistry homework and the fucking (laughs) uh, uranium Pu-36 explosive space modulator. I'm surprised they didn't have a dissected frog on the table too. Well, that was in the, in the murder clinic, right? With the, what was the, what was the animal? They Yeah. Well, it was a a guinea guinea pig. pig. Um, there wasn't any glamour or art or modeling or photography or anything like that in the movie. Well, there was, uh, 
Claudine painting. Oh, yeah. Look at that. All right. Good. There were no priests in the movie. No one was trying to prove his innocence or their innocence. There was no psychologist. There was no rooftop um, scene. I mean, other than pushing uh, Jeanette out of her wheelchair, they really weren't on the rooftop. Was there a spiral staircase? I don't remember seeing one. I don't think so. I think the only stairs we saw were the ones in the dungeons or in the catacombs. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. When they were in the main area of the castle, they never went anywhere up or down. The only other time we saw steps was um, when Zombie Boy was walking up the steps. Right. All right, I'm going to take spiral steps off. There was no taunting. There was no visual misinterpretation. Okay, let me update the score. And the result is 72. Wow. That's pretty high. Huh. But, you know, Carnal Circuit got a 74. Double Face got a 74. The Possessed got a 73. So, uh, and the Murder Clinic got a 75. So, I mean, it's not uncommon to see, uh, not uncommon to see 70s for some of these. Now, Psych Out for Murder got a 44. So, interesting. Very interesting. And once you get, once you get, to bird with the crystal plumage and move from there, you start to see eighties and nineties pretty much consistently, which um, very well may indicate a flaw in the scoring system. But anyway, uh, (laughs) that's for another discussion. So I think that's it, everybody. I think we did it to death as we always do. Um, Thanks for listening. We are done with Doll of Satan. And uh, we're going to move on onward and upward to episode 97, where we will be talking about either the naked violence, not the naked violence, but naked violence, or the third eye, depending on what we decide to do and what you guys respond to on our Facebook group. So speaking of all that real quick, I'm going to drop some plugs here. Facebook is Jalo Chow Chow. Um, it's a private group. So go in and request an invite uh, to be led into that discussion. You can also send us email at Jalo Chow Chow at gmail.com. Don't forget to visit. I hate Matt for everything he's up to. And of course my website, the Jalo score, which we just talked about a few minutes ago, and uh, that's about it. Al, thanks as always for going through this. It took us five or so hours. <laughs> it never, it, it, I, you know, maybe if, if they do Jalo, like 45 minute episode, you know, TV uh-huh. shows, we could get down to three hours. I don't know. It just seems to be getting longer by the, yeah. by the episode. But yeah, we need to start watching Murder, She Wrote there you go. or something. Murder, She Wrote, Chow Chow. <laughs> what's it, what's the name of the what's the name of that show in italian it's not murder she wrote it's like uh signora la signora in giallo yeah, la signora in giallo the, the lady in yellow anything from your end of the world here you want to throw in before we end uh not really just uh stay cool this summer if you're in some place that's having crazy heat waves <laughs> 
Uh, be sure to stay hydrated and in the shade. <laughs> and uh, if you're planning on visiting Italy this summer, uh, skip it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait until the fall because uh, you don't want to be here. Trust me. Yeah, take it from and us. We are the, the authorities on hydration and it, it, Italian tourism advice. Take it from us. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not already here, turn back turn now. Turn back. Head to Death Valley instead. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. that is going to be it for us. We will see you next time. Be sure to go to the Facebook group and vote for which film you would like us to do next as we get closer to episode 100. And until next time, everybody, ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao.